My fellow Estorians, I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. Each episode of Valar Reredis for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches. More discussion potential comes with these new chapters. We have little idea what we're getting into. Some of these chapters are still very uh, misunderstood, or at least maybe there's mysteries still to under uncover. So we're pretty excited about that, getting into these. A standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time we see them. You never know what changes George might decide to make. But for the most part, we don't expect too many changes. Today's guests are our good friends from the Game of Owns podcast. Hello, friends. How are you? Hello. We're excited to be here. Very excited to be here. Yeah. So Sorry you got our, like not decorum at the beginning. We're just like <laughs> already hanging before we even started. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't help ourselves. We're just so chatty. We're all we're, we're we've been friends for a while. Uh, this group of us here. And yeah, you guys are on the road, as a lot of you watching will be able to tell. If you're listening on podcasts, that's going to remain secret until I said it just now. So you guys are traveling. You're in North Carolina right now, right? That's pretty fun. Yep. Yeah, we are. we've got just a place set up, work from home, energy, hanging out for a little while while we're all stuck, you know, not going into our usual places. So it's yeah, fun. that is cool. Yeah, we're glad we can make it work. That's neat that you guys are still able to call in from there. Um, Thank you, modern technology. Thank you, uh, streaming right. tech. <laughs> well, what have you guys been up to over at Game of Owns? It's it's actually, from what I understand, we're somewhat aligned right now, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, we just actually, our last episode was the second to last Barry chapter from The Dance of Dragons. So I just had to catch up the last chapter between this one, uh, The Queen's Hand, and uh, got to refresh myself on Barry 1, T-Wow, Barry 2, T-Wow. Honestly, it's made me feel so amped today because of the nice. nature of what we're going over. Right. And we've just been so deep in Marine over the last... Yeah. So we're coming to the end of our reading order, probably just like four or five episodes left before mm-hmm. we finish the ends of our Dance with Dragons reading order. And so we're deep into it. Couldn't be a better time for us to be talking Winds of Winter. Can we spoil everyone and tell them uh, <laughs> that you guys... I'm just going to say it. The... Uh, uh, they're going to be coming on our uh, Queen's Hand episode at the end of our yeah. order. Yeah, we're doing a little... We're doing, it, we're doing it out of order, but <laughs> right. all, the, all the same energy. We'll go back and pick up on the rest. As easy as frozen right now on our screen in, in the best way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an ice man. I'm a statue. So, yeah, that's really, that is really cool. You guys are in the same spot, so your minds are wrapped up in Marine. As we noted here on Valor mm-hmm. Aritas, the end of, of Dance with Dragons is something like 10 of the final 18 chapters are in Marine, so it's really... Mm-hmm. Really quite focused there. And of course, all of the, the Winds of Winter chapters that we're covering here at the start are Battle of Fire focused. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. How do you have, have your opinions about these last chapters, all bunched in Marine, changed in this reading order or, or rather this the coverage that you guys are doing now since the last time you read it? Yeah, definitely. I think I even maybe said something to that effect. I can't remember if I said it on the podcast or just expressed it to someone who asked me. But yes, a Marine. I'll admit it's difficult. Like it can be if you don't have the energy to figure it all out. And I can understand that, especially because it's like I said, it's difficult. And if you've only read the series once or twice, it probably doesn't fully. It's probably not fully clear. But once it is clear, it's pretty amazing. And yes, it is a challenge. It's a worthwhile challenge. But I have to admit that I probably even myself didn't have 
some of the nuance fully understood. There's a couple of important key details I only somewhat got and hadn't necessarily uh, framed them with the rest of the of what was going on. And I definitely hadn't made some of the really strong thematic connections between like the right. challenges John John is facing versus the challenges Danny is facing, mm-hmm. and how similar those are. And that is just brilliant. Seeing uh, this is, I think, if I could say about myself, the thing I did better this time through that I didn't do when I was a younger reader was understand themes and literature stuff that I wasn't as strong on. I was more caught up in just fantasy details. You know, that was my that was my kind of my pathway into all this in the first place. And uh, I'd like to think I'm more comprehensive with my analysis now. <laughs> what about you I guys? Love the re- same really for me. Totally. And even just, so we did this chapter on Game of Bones probably like a year and change ago. Mm-hmm. And so before we came on today, I was kind of listening to it back just to kind of refresh my memory on what my thoughts were even a year and a half ago. And even from then, I feel like just because we've been in the trenches with these last We've been in Marine for so long. I feel like even my understanding this time around as well has just been so much more nuanced and enriched because when you take things chapter by chapter and when you take things sentence by sentence and you're not necessarily reading for plot anymore, you're kind of forced to pick up on some of those details that, as you were saying, Aziz, like as a younger reader, you're reading just to get to the end. But we already we've been where we're at for a decade. And so, you know, we can have the time to slow down it, and it rem- actually enjoy it. It reminds me of analyzing classical music composition that a composer oh. a couple hundred years ago put out where at the time it was a lot of entertainment of the day and everyone's soaking it up and they like it or they don't like it. But we have all of this time, decades, uh, centuries later to understand the meaning of what they were channeling into it and how it mm. translated the current time period. And I feel like the complexity that George has written specifically at the end of dance where, like you said, it it feels sort of difficult and your understanding of it might fall apart as you're reading with the momentum of an actual reader. What we're doing right now is like the beginning of, I feel like the beginning of that long-term analysis that people will be able to do much in the future. And they're going to understand it way better than we are right now. We're going to have so much time separated from it. Like we're able to look at those classical pieces of music and understand the complexity. That's a really good way to put it too, because and to add on to that, I'd like to say that Hannah said the way the ending is already there. We already know it. And the way that we can, instead of just immersing ourselves in the plot, which is great, of course, we care about the plot, but that is where we're paused, right? And and other than discovering things we hadn't seen before that might have impact what we, how we view the plot, we pretty much know that stuff. But like, uh, for example, something that we've talked about occasionally on Valerie Ritas and we the value of this series now and the way we engage with it. And it's, it's sort of a expression of, this, this is something that came from ta- uh, the fact that we do this on Sundays. Some people have started to call it like a, it's like a song of ice and fire church. And, <laughs> but but just, <laughs> it, it's, it's becoming more and more apt because we use a song of ice and fire. We use like m- small stories, kind of like how people in like Bible study will look at stories. They'll take a small mm-hmm. s- story from the Bible yeah. and they'll analyze it in modern times. And like, how does this apply to us now? We don't know. We're, we don't face the challenges they face. We're not living in their experience. So we try to apply it to our modern living and try to say, well, what can we learn from this? What, how does this have value to us in our life? And that's a lot of what goes on in church, <laughs> you know, is, is uh, yep. sorting through that. And that's really valuable. And Go we have Sunday some... Right 
<laughs> and that's really fitting because this, in one of the big sections of this episode today, is we're going to talk about prayer and how people use prayer to deal with fear and other anxieties, other things that are just way outside of individual control, things that just, as human beings, we have no control over. And this is a way that there's a lot of that in this chapter. So it's a pretty, pretty good mm-hmm. time to, to bring it up. And those things come up to the surface whenever you're facing impending doom or impending yeah. action where you all must act. I like that that's among the last thing that Barry says to his captains and to the other people around them. It's like, you have to get to those things that we don't normally discuss with each other. That's normally not necessarily faux pas, but unnecessary to get into. And with so many... At last left on the table. Yeah, and with so many cultures represented here, Barristan notes, and that's something else we're going to talk about. There's so many, there's the Unsullied, there's Barristan, there's Basilis, the guy from the Basilisk Isles, there's guys from who are locals, there's guys from Lazarine, there's... Just so many cultures represented, and they each have their own ways of dealing with with death and fear. And that's one of the things that makes it really fascinating is seeing these varieties. And yet, there's such something in common that unites it all. They're they're all feeling Mm -hmm. the same emotion, even if they're dealing with it a little differently. I I love what you all, I know we'll get to it, but uh, you were talking (laughs) about the sort of greater elements being revealed as part of getting more into details with this particular case to reread. I love the detail that y'all put in the doc of creating a reverse order of what what might be, you were mentioning John before, what might happen with the White Walkers and how it's sort of a preview of the fire side of the of the two sides of the fire and ice element right now with this knowing that at this point the story is really exciting right on yeah well said well let's start with some meta chapter history we like to give a little detail on how this chapter came to be and where it came out and all that something that's been long been the pattern in publishing is that the hardcover book comes out first then they'll wait a few months then they'll release the kraken i mean the paperback some people wait for it since it's cheaper, but publishers will incentivize the people who already own the hardcover by adding something new to the paperback. In A Song of Ice and Fire's case, there's always been a sample chapter added to the back. If you go way back to Game of Thrones book one, there was a Theon chapter at the back of it, the paperback. My first experience with this personally was reading Cersei one in the back of A Storm of Swords at a mall bookstore in Atlanta. <laughs> I was like, hey, there's the books. There's the book. Let me see. <gasps> Cersei. I had no idea. It was so exciting. I can imagine you standing there beside the bookshelf reading that. Well, they had seats, so I sat down. (laughs) But yes, I would have stood. You're right. You're not wrong. I would have just, you know, I did what I would have done what I had to do. (laughs) Ebooks haven't really displaced this pattern. They've really just given people additional options. So it still works this way. For example, the paperback bonus sample chapter for A Dance with Dragons was this one. You guessed it. Today's chapter, Barristan One. And it hit stores. October 29th, 2013. Now, that actually makes it sound like it was one of the earliest sample chapters. After all, you know, Dance of Dragons came out in like June 2011. So we're talking only two years later, this chapter came out. But it wasn't. It was the the third fully released, but the sixth chapter that came out after Dance of Dragons. We've, As we've said, Theon 1 was first, Ariane 1 was next, and then this one for the fully released ones. And then as far as chapters read aloud at conventions, there was Victorian 1, Tyrion 1, and interestingly, Barristan 2 before Barristan 1. So George was having a little fun there. Maybe he hadn't finished writing it all the way. Who knows? One day, maybe we'll find out. What are your all's impressions of what we have so far as far as the sample chapters? We have some Battle of Ice stuff. We have Battle of Fire. We have Forsaken. Any overall kind of takes on, on what we've got so far? 
I think that it's clear what he sort of expected us to know mm. based on being able to delve from the end of the, of the published book, from the end of Feast and the end of Dance. And uh, he gave us what he had sort of already decided on. And it's cool to see it. I think the the most surprising for me was how integral to the plot moving forward Ariane's journey is. Mm. And I think that might come to the surprise of some people who also weren't really rooting for more of a Dornish element to continue the color of the story, but it's clear that it will. I know that that's something that the show did not go into, so it's exciting to see that decision be decided so early for me. From the Forsaken, the really long-reaching mysterious elements for me were not really touched on, but it was cool to get the groundwork laid out and uh, to get me excited for seeing those two key battles take place and how they'll come together. What about you? Well, I, I kind of thought was thinking about it a little bit more on a meta level because I feel like my relationship just like with the sample chapters has changed so much over time because, you know, as they're being released long time since we've had any new content, like direct content sample chapter kind of wise. And I feel like the farther that we get away from the publish of Dance of Dragons and the closer we eventually get to the publishing of Winds of Winter, how much has changed necessarily in George's mind, in his writing, in his layout of things? Probably not a ton, but I just feel like the sample chapters, I just look at them a little bit differently than came out as this like gospel truth of this is exactly what it's going to be. And we're going to get this information in a couple of years. And this is kind of like the buildup and excitement for what comes next. It's been a really, really long time. And so, <laughs> um, you know, obviously not, obviously these major details aren't really going to change and it's not like he's going to get rid of the forsaken and in, in the winds of winter or anything <laughs> wild like that. But I do have a different relationship with the sample chapters just because there's a lot of information there, but there's time that has progressed between the different books being published. And so I'm curious to see, what may or may not have been changed and kind of what George's thought process is as we potentially get more sample chapters before the Winds of Winter comes out and what that might look like and then what they might actually look like in published form mm. because it's just been such a long time. Yeah. So. I'm so excited that we got dragons flying over to <laughs> That is so cool. Yeah. yeah that's it's enough to get you keep you going. Right. Like, <laughs> Something that's interesting to me too is that like thinking back to when we first read this chapter... And, you know, got the summary for Barristan too. We didn't have the show telling us that Barristan was going to get, you know, stabbed or die some way. Even if he doesn't die that same way, the, the possibility that he dies before seeing Daenerys again or that he dies just before getting to Westeros, let's say, just generically saying, putting that simply, like we don't know in the details, but let's say he never gets that far. That's something I hadn't thought about a lot. A uh, good example of just a small detail that George probably hasn't changed his mind on, but it's something that, the show, even if it's completely wrong, it gave us something to consider. And right. uh, so that's something we'll do today. At the end, we'll save that question for the end. I'll have you guys give your predictions for right Barristan, now. what may or may not happen with him, and a couple other predictions that, I've, uh, that I have. I want to ask every guest we have on for the Battle of Fire what's going to happen with some of these basic things that are mysteries. So you guys mm -hmm. will we'll get you to weigh in on some of those later on. Let's have a quick synopsis here. Barristan the Bold sits astride the silver horse of Queen Daenerys, the mother of dragons. The reason they're where they are today, though she herself knows none of this. He's been dealing with politics and intrigue, and that is not his specialty. 
battle is, however, and he sets out to impart as much of the confidence he's earned over his life to the men around him who are preparing to charge the Yunkish armies. We've been over the importance of morale many times, and Barristan seems to clearly understand that as he stands tall in the saddle, moving slowly, showing no fear, yet admitting that he feels it. He doesn't present an unrealistic standard of fearlessness. He reminds them all that everyone is human, everyone feels fear, nor does he speak of glory or even duty. Without duty, they wouldn't be there preparing to fight in the first place. As for glory, survival will be reward enough for now. All of this has happened before, he tells them by pointing out the overwhelmingly common pattern of humans going to war and fear being part of every single instance, he seeks to make it seem more normal. And he's got a point. On the other hand, a few of them may have looked up at the dragons and flying corpses, the fire atop the pyramid, the seemingly fearless, unsullied freedmen standing nearby, and the fact that a legendary Kingsguard knight is leading their Miranese coalition, a Westerasi. Huh. Noting all that, they might disagree a little with calling this normal or something that's happened before. In fact, it seems like anything but unprecedented. It's definitely unprecedented. But that doesn't make him wrong. He's just focusing on the feelings within, not the dangers without. Because without dealing with the former, at least somewhat, you can't deal with the latter at all. They have a good plan, but a lot can go wrong. It is a battle, after all, and they want to return through the gates the way they came in, not flying over the walls as one of the corpses that we see here in the first line. Through the gloom of night, the dead men flew, raining down upon the city streets. And that, my friends, is Barristan 1. The gang prepares to charge, a.k.a. a man, a plan. Barristan Skahazadan. <laughs> <laughs> in the Battle of Fire Up, we actually called it Sound the Attack, which is how the chapter ends. Uh, it's a reasonable way to call it. But, you know, we wanted to go a little farther this time. So what's your, we got y'all's reaction to the Winds of Winter chapter overall. What about this specific one that we're here to work on today? How does it make you feel? What does it make you think about all that? This chapter is really exciting because I feel like we, and where we are in Game of Bones right now is Barristan is just very uncomfortable with the situation that he's in. He's very much out of his element, fish out of water as he's trying to play the political game. And he says time and time again how much he just doesn't like that. And finally, we get to see him doing the things that he likes to do, which is hyping his guys up, riding around in his armor, ready for battle, thinking about how he's going to be the first guy to charge through. And I feel like it's exciting. Ariston, um feel like he can at least navigate better this situation. The, they're outnumbered. They've got the pale mare flying through the streets, they've got, you know, a million different things that are kind of against them. They have to rely on all these cell swords. And so it's not like the ideal battle setup. I don't know if there is an ideal battle setup, <laughs> but um, to finally get the momentum moving and finally getting to, to see him in a more comfortable position. Like this is something that he can do for Daenerys. This is something that he can um, lead the charge on. It's not it's not, this is, he's, he's the guy and this is what he does. And when we actually get to see him participate in uh, what will likely be a legendary battle. And For so sure. it's a really great chapter. I loved it. Isn't it weird to yeah. think this is his comfort zone? This is the I know. comfort zone? <laughs> I know. Like what? <laughs> Did you yeah, see the flying about... <laughs> corpses? 
<laughs> exactly. Flying corpses, how, you know, people are going to basically pee their pants and cry for their mom on the battlefield. And he's like, this is where, this is where it's at for me. And so <laughs> yeah. I'm happy for the guy, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's less comfortable in boring conversations where he can tell, he sees everyone looking around trying to get margins on each other. And it's, but I'm better equipped than you in the middle of chaos because I know how to keep my head and you really haven't been preparing for as much as I have. Yeah. For, for his whole life, basically. Like, that's his thing, like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with what you just said. And I think that as far as uh, the writing is concerned, that once you reach the elements of Barry looking around and seeing the fire getting lit at the top of the pyramid, keeping in mind who's carrying what banners, we have a Kingsguard banner being represented, we have a Targaryen banner being represented. It seems like he's back home in a classic Barristan Selmy sense without outright saying it. But if you know his history, it's like, so at it's so at peace with who he is on the inside and who he's really protected for most of his career and then seeing the sunrise full of his speech. it's just <laughs> i knew this chapter needed to get written if if there was going to be a fight and i don't think that george could have written it any better without it's just the the patience that he that he put into giving us the placement of all the different troops and their individual activities of how they reacted to the bodies flying and where they were standing, things like that. And uh, the way that he's treating the, the three people that he, they're, they're crazy names, but uh, the th three of his, uh, his trainees that he brought yeah. up, his, exactly his, his squires that he brought up to fight with him. It's just, it all is the, it's like, it, it's the perfect embrace of all the details that have led up to this moment. George released this, early because he knew for sure no matter how much he changed as a, per as a person or how much the world changed around him that the dominoes that he had already set up i really think that this is a perfect way for them all to come together well, the, the way that we have the sample chapter ahead of time like this is is so enticing for the <laughs> yeah so something else that's different about the winds of winter given we know these chapters are at the beginning we certainly haven't had a book before and i asked this of, of my previous guests the last couple of weeks as well what do you guys think of the fact that we're start having a book start off with battles? That is, we haven't had anything like that. We've had certainly had excitement at the beginning, but none of the other books started with battles. We're much more likely to have battles at the end of the books and something like an aftermath at the beginning of the next book or neither, mm -hmm. right? This, this, is, this is completely unprecedented for this series. So how does that feel? And what do you think that might do for the rest of the structure of the book? Like if we're starting with this, where does that, you know, that means we're not going to just have battles all the way through. So... Yeah, what do you all right. think? Well, we were talking about this chapter being a little bit of a tease. I feel like we've been <laughs> we've been building up to this battle for so long and not <laughs> yeah, wise of us talking about it, but like as we've been slowly going through the chapters and we've been in Marine talking about this battle until I feel like I have nothing new to say about it anymore. So I feel like we kind of have to. I mean, I think that it would almost be a disservice for us to have spent so much time kind of in the trenches and leading up to this moment to then have to continue to wait and to continue <laughs> to like draw this whole thing out. It's going to drive me crazy. And so I feel like it has to start off with this battle. Otherwise, I would lose my mind. So that's not like a very <laughs> literary analysis kind of thing. But it's just, I just, I think that slowing that down to maybe set the pieces a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. The pieces are set and everything is yeah. ready to go. George said that the Victorian chapter starts like his, his exact words were five minutes after the end of Dance of Dragons. So we do have a pretty confident quote from him that it's going to be right away. But as but that was a while ago. So like you said, <laughs> something could change. But yeah, right. it and, seems pretty certain. What do you think? And Zach? this isn't the only fight 
that we have to look at too. I think yeah. that as far, as far as the books are concerned, just sort of guessing the elements of them based on the rest that we have available and the names of the books themselves, it makes sense to me that we hit the ground running like this. Like it's like you're jumping on a treadmill and it's already going nine to thirteen miles per hour, and you have to keep up with it. You're grabbing the sides and you're trying to catch up 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 with it with your feet. That's basically what we're going to be doing. And <laughs> I think that once that's over, then we have what the winds of winter really is. The suspicion that I have is a feeling of sort of battening down the hatches and preparing for what's to come after fallout from these things will be so great. There will be so much to deal with. And I think that we're going to be surprised in a lot of ways, or maybe not surprised if we keep and analyzing it for years to come at this point. But I, think it, I, I, I don't think we have that much more time to wait, hopefully. But still, I think that it makes sense that, we, that we're coming into the book like this. Like I said, I think the bulk of the Winds of, of, the winds of Winter is going to be dealing with this in a way that is sort of making us feel more serious mm. and more prepared for the scale of how big the next stuff that we have to deal with. That's a good be. point. Yeah, because scale, mentioning scale, because you start off with these like large numbers of people all in the same place or a couple of different locations gathered for these battles. And yeah, what a way, like after, like after Hannah, like what Hannah said, we go a decade or so and start off with a bang, right? We don't lead in, we go right. boom, battles, multiple. I'm really wondering whether he's going to like stay with the battle of fire and just do it all like back to back to back to back until it's done and then go to the battle oh, of ice or if we're going to go back and forth. That's another thing we've never really had. What a blending of temperatures yeah. and flavors that would be. <laughs> that would be right. Wild. It's crazy. Yeah. Like we've had like the, the Blackwater didn't have that. It switched around POVs within the yeah. battle. It did not go elsewhere until it was done. Right. It was very. That makes sense for book two, though. You yeah. Know? <clears throat> and so we come into book book six like this and whether we're bouncing back and forth. Where do we go from here? Yeah, we go in further into Westeros with a a greater, more dangerous threat potentially, with us attacking people that we've been waiting to attack, with us mixing forces with people that we've been waiting to attack after they've been attacked, and then in Essos we have other free cities and places that have not been attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah. we don't know what that looks like yet, and so. It's going to be way more serious than now. And yeah. I think that they're going to give it all that they've got. I think everyone is going to give it all that they've got because something like this has not happened in this way in any, in any, in any histories that we have to look at at any scale. Yeah. They've been sending off, they've been sending off basically free companies to fight for them prox, proxily out in the disputed lands. It hasn't really been brought to their front door yet. And That's I feel true. like yeah. whoever, whoever survives this and wins this and has the, the, Force from this fight is going to be knocking on the doors of those places that have been paying other people to fight for them for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's really important too because with this stuff with battle, George is really interesting in how he writes battles. He doesn't stint on the action. He makes it exciting. But he, <clears throat> just like every other chapter he writes, he includes layers that have little to do with the battle. They uh, are foreshadowing other things. They're speaking to other themes. Uh, or they're just trying to make it all very human. That's something George does really well, is it's not just battle. It's how human beings cope with battle and cope with aftermath and cope with all the fear. Because technically, y'all read the chapter. I'm speaking to the audience, but also you, <laughs> my friends here. Hope we read the chapter. <laughs> it's not, there's no actual battle in this chapter. There's lots of talk about it, and we know it's about to happen, but Technically, there's no fighting in this chapter. It's just the build up to that. It's just coming. 
and that tension in that mood. So let's talk about mood. That's one of the most dominant features of this chapter. And we, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, the way people deal with it is an important factor here. So just laying out all the things that the, the soldiers and the citizens of Marine have going on around them. We've got the plague and the death and the war and the famine, as, as we talked about in our Valerie Reedus, uh, I think it was probably episode nine of A Dance with Dragons, something like that. We talked about how there was the four horsemen uh, theme was very strong when Astapor had its own kind of, well, we called it the Astaporocalypse. And it's continuing <laughs> a long line of very direct hell metaphors from Slaver's Bay, what with the slavery and the heat and the ho- people shaping their hair into horns. I mean, come on, right? That's, that's hell. <laughs> so it's sticking with the biblical themes here. The savior is Daenerys here. If anyone's a savior figure, it's clearly her and she's missing. They don't know where she is. And we know she's alive, but as is a really important thing to keep in mind for the actual characters dealing with the situation in the story, they don't know whether she's alive. So there's massive anxiety over whether she's even still alive. And when she does inevitably return, it's going to seem like a resurrection of sorts to some people because they're going to have either cynically or just whatever reason, just they thought she was dead. Some of them think she's dead. Like some people are certain that she's dead. None of our three OP of E's do, but lots of people do. And so that's something else that's really different here is when we had, we have dragons, we have politics, we have sellswords, we have the Volantine fleet coming. So it's really just as human beings who have not faced any of those things. (laughs) I haven't faced one of those things in my life, let alone all 12 of those things. We really can't put ourselves in their shoes. We can try a little, but we just can't do it. But we just have to know intellectually that it's just unbelievable. And so what I think is going on here, um, Barristan is using what I, I'm not some sort of expert in psychology, but I think what he's trying to do is very, you can parse it from a psychological perspective. What he's trying to do is bring uh, he knows what they're feeling. He's felt it before. He even, one of my, this is kind of funny. He even says, you may, you know, uh, you may defecate yourself. Everyone's done, you know, right. I, I did that in my first battle. He's kind of saying, right. he, he's kind of saying everybody poops, right? <laughs> right. Just, <laughs> same even thing. a guy like him, you know? Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> he does, yeah. believe it or not. So he knows that in that moment, they're all in their own heads. They're all very internal. They're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? They're praying, they're worried, they're anxious. I mean, there's obviously some exceptions. There's a few other barristers mm-hmm. in the crowd who are just like tough, really tough-minded or what have you. But most of them are just pretending to be tough. And so he's trying to bring them outside of themselves. That speech he gives is very like, you've, you've been afraid. Everybody's been afraid. You've done this. Everybody does that. Don't think about it. Just do. He's trying to get them out of their head and think, just swing your sword and move on. Don't think about your feelings. Just do what you got to do. And I find that like, that's kind of a, it's a basic, but it seems kind of effective. And I think that's really applicable. Just in terms of you find one of your friends is scared about something, try to, that's a normal thing to try to do. You try to get them out of their head about it. Don't think about it too much. Don't overthink it. Especially if it's something you have to face. Like if you have no choice but to face it, it doesn't do you a lot of good to worry over and obsess over it. Right. What do y'all think about this aspect of it? He's like, a, and I like how he mentions, I've been through a million battles. There's men across the land sitting in their local inn talking about and reminiscing all the battles they've been through. People live. He says, some people will die, but most of you will make it. And kind of, I think, reminding, because so many of these people, like we talk about like his little new little knights and all these people are really green. And this is a situation 
you know, we're kind of talking about these biblical references. It's apocalyptic. I mean, this is the thing. And so even if folks have lived through some sort of trial or conflict, it's probably not at this scale. And so just that reminder, that steady hand from somebody who has real experience and he's like, look, I've lived through it. All these other guys have lived through it. So as you're saying, just like get out of your head and let's get going. And I, this is kind of what we were talking about, Barrison being in his element. I mean, the speech that he gives, if you didn't read the chapter and you're watching, I would definitely go back and read those couple paragraphs because he just is able to, even for myself, I'm like, I could probably follow this guy. I'm a scaredy cat. I'll follow this guy through battle. You know, like he really captures the spirit of what's going on here. And so I think that just a reminder of I'm the guy and I've been the guy and I'm still going to be the guy. Um, yeah. Got me hype. Zach, it's kind of like saying words, words aren't always wind, are they? You could say maybe, right? Right. right. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. We, we, we have Barristan as our commander in this situation. And so the, I said it was, it was good writing. And I think that mathematically, that without Barristan, they don't really have a chance. Mm. But I think that with the way the numbers are spread and the way that they're surrounded and with the weird potential magical elements that might come into play, mm. and especially with Danny not being there yet, I think that mathematically, the way the dominoes have been set from the first pages of a Game of Thrones leading to this eventual conflict, that the person that needed to be here for them to be successful was Barristan. Mm -hmm. And so I think, that, I, I think that his speech is a lot along the same path of why uh, it's good writing because his speech is, is good because he's just being honest. Like That's why it's going to work. For, for them to believe it. That's why it's working for us to read it and to like it because this is what he's been through and this is what he knows to be true. So he's just being honest about it. And that's why it seems so effective because there's no BS. It's like Aragorn standing at the gates of Mordor and he's giving his final speech. He's basically saying like, I'm scared too. This is going to be crazy. This might happen and it might kill us all. And it, it, But he's poised yeah, when he, he says it, right? And that's really important. He's like, look. Yeah. He's like, and he looks you, cool you at can't. the same time. <laughs> yes. That helps. That does. You're but right. See, that's, that's part of Barristan's knowledge. That's part of the reason why he is so effective. It's like, it's like when he got prepared to fight Kraz, you know, and cleaning himself and preparing his armor in the same way. It wasn't just about the armor being effective in close quarter combat. It's all part of what he knows to be true. It's, it's like a ritual. He's mounting Danny's mare like he's exactly it's the trappings it's of power being, right Melisandre says yeah power exactly flow. yeah and, and it's not power in this he's, sense the power means being. courage and confidence yeah it all matters he's a human being and he's, he's he's taking up and absorbing all the different elements of being a human being the most effective way the outside stuff the inside stuff as well as the political intrigue as well as the mathematics as far as what they're facing literally in the battle as well as looking at the different insecure parts of the, the wall. Uh, I think that he's overlooking Skahas and the Brazen Beasts, unfortunately. Yeah. But he's, <laughs> he's basically taking stock of, of most of the details that he needs to to be successful. And like I said, I think it's just good writing. And, and it's keeping us right on the needle of things might go really bad mm -hmm. or things might go really good. And that's why it's so good. That's why it's not boring to read because it's right there in the middle. That tension is so perfect. Yeah. Even and though we kind of know taking, Barrett team Danny's probably going to win. It doesn't mean care people we care about. Well, we don't die. know how they're going to win. Yeah. Either, how? You know? yeah. Right. Or who might die. She's like not you said. I think that, and I know we'll get to this later, but just because we're on the subject, I think that the way that that team Danny wins is going to be reflective of the point that I just made where it's sort of just right in the line where we're not that happy about it and we could be a lot more sad about it. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's just good writing. He's just reflecting that sort of 
creative tension between black and white that turns into gray and all the different layers that he can in the story and all the different ways that he can express it in the story. Yeah, well said. Our, our contributor, Joe Buckley, who is, I should give a shout out to Joe and Nina, um, who have been continuing their participation in our documents and helping us have our episodes be as good as they can be. So shout out to the Isle of Faces podcast, Joe Buckley and Nina Friel's goodqueenalley.tumblr.com with one L in the alley. Check those out. Uh, you'll be hearing there some of their takes throughout this episode. First one coming right here. Bear, uh, Joe puts it really well. This is, I mean, Barristan is a Kingsguard. He's been a Kingsguard most of his life. Going out and killing the Queen's enemies. You really can't put it more simpler than that. Like that is... King's guards are supposed to defend against enemies. There's no offense like a good, no defense like a good offense. They're going to pre, kind of premeditated, uh, um, preemptive strike rather. One thing that we will talk about throughout this episode is mirroring. We're going to focus on it at some point, but we're going to kind of go in and out of that topic throughout the episode as well. And one thing we've already spoken to in prior uh, Winds of Winter episodes is the some similarities between these POVs that are watching the Battle of Fire, in particular. Barristan and Victorian have a lot in common, even though uh, as warrior types. Now, of course, they have huge differences as well. And one of those differences is here in how they deal with it. They both give speeches. Now, we don't have Victorian's speech. It's part of the chapter that's missing at this point. But we can guess that he doesn't say anything like, I'm afraid to. Like, no way. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so where, whereas they both have this sort of exhilaration for battle, Barristan is way more sympathetic with the men around him, where Victorian is more like contemptuous of fear. And he's like, look, if you're afraid, you're going to get left behind. He probably says something like that. He's probably more like, it's about reward. It's about glory, where Barristan's more about, we just got to get through this. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> be brave. You hate them. If Here's a great line that I think is is really applicable. And it's our next discussion point here. He says, it's absurd. Battle is one of the silliest, ridiculous, dumbest things that people do. And in order to face it, you have to, a lot of times you have to be something that you're not, right? You have to work yourself up into a type of person that you've never been. Like you're, if you're not a killer, if you're not someone that's comfortable with killing, which most people aren't, well, you're about, you better learn that real quick or you will, because you're in a kill or be killed situation. That's why he says things like the foe you see before you is just another man. And like as not, he is as frightened as you. Hate him if you must. Love him if you can. But lift your sword, bring it down, and ride on. Like, definitely Victorian didn't say something like that. Maybe the part about bringing it down and lifting your sword. That right. part, he's like, yeah. No love from him. <laughs> yeah. He, he wouldn't, yeah. The word love is like never uttered, never left his lips, probably. <laughs> right. So that's extremely different. But still, it is still a way of dealing with fear. It's a way of dealing with, with battle and dealing with this, this intense, like, unbelievable situation. Let's talk about that a little bit, like how it works you up, how you have to change who you are to get through a situation like this. And that really very much relates to Barrison trying to get these guys to not be too much inside their heads, to not see how the difficulty of this change, to see how you have to be someone else to get through that. How does that resonate with you all as a concept and has a difficult thing to face? I think it's like exercising a muscle and you can't achieve the growth until you put it through that stress oh. and you can decide, you can decide to do it or it can be a part of your life. If you have a labor job and you're forced to do it for other reasons and it's part of the mechanics that you're going through, 
But either way, there has to be some kind of an impetus and then an action to force a kind of transformation to take place, whether you like it or not. It's gonna, it's gonna have to happen. And I think that when you look at the people smarter than me talk about needing to have fear in order for bravery to happen, I think that the concept of bravery is a meta concept until you actually go through those actions. And I think that if I could put it into a sequence that has some imagery associated with it, it might not be the, the best part of the story for people to visualize it because I think he'd probably experienced it at this point already. But think about the tracking shot where they were following John around the Battle of the Bastards when he yeah. was fighting inside of all the tumult of uh, chaos of people fighting around him. It was, uh, imagine your adrenaline, your heart rate pumping over 200 at that point, and you don't know what ha- what's happening next. You have to physically go through the motions in order to achieve what you're trying to accomplish in a fight. You have to actually swing your sword and hit people, and you're scared that whole time. Or like when he was inside of the, the shack at Hard Home, I think that physically moving through the things that you, you know you need to do while you're afraid is what Ned Stark was trying to describe to Bran at the beginning of the story of, of what bravery actually is. That it's a concept until you have to physically act through it. Mm-hmm. And then when you're acting through it, there's a transformation that's happening, whether you like it or not. It's a part of those actions. So it's a few different concepts, I think, getting mashed together at one time. And that's not to, to mention the kind of transformation that's going to happen to you after all of it, if you survive. If it, I mean, there's going to be different parts of you that, that, come out and you're going to have to deal with the falling action of the things that you've done. When you're in the middle of doing something that raises your heart rate, that makes you anxious, mm. that makes you scared, that, that is what people are referring to when they talk about bravery. That just going through it and not freezing up, that's what bravery is. Like going live on a podcast right now. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before we hear from Hannah on this, let's, let's go ahead and fill out that circle. You mentioned Ned and that is one of the first big quotable lines of the entire series. When Mm -hmm. Ned says to Bran, a man can only be brave when he's afraid. That is extremely similar. It's a more succinct version of what Barristan says here. Every boy feels the same way on the eve of battle. I and grown men as well. Those storm crows over there are feeling the same thing. So are the Dothraki. There is no shame in fear unless you let it master you. We all taste terror in our time. Yeah, what do you think, Hannah? Well, I think that so much of A Song of Ice and Fire is about kind of mastering your identity and kind of mastering like who you are and, and what your nor- narrative and story is. And I think that battle, this battle and fear is kind of like the refiner's fire when it comes to change. And these, the, like, this is going to be one of those defining moments that changes a lot of people who are participating. And so I think that as we talk about going through hard things, I think that just so much... To me, this is a in perspective of kind of what's happening on a larger scale with people through A Song of Ice and Fire and this change and this rising to meet expectations and this need to be something in order to get the job done and it need to kind of meet everybody else in order to grasp power and things like that and zoom in while also being zoomed out. It's it's also a, a microcosm of the changes that to us in a modern society with our own ideals need to happen on the face of Essos. And it's exploding in Marine, probably one of the more fierce and, and storied uh, places that hold a lot of these old concepts that we don't necessarily subscribe to. Hmm. And so with these individual problems that our characters are facing in their own way, each individual person in, in the fight are dealing with bravery and change in their own little way. 
the actual face of Wester of uh, of Plantos itself is going to get scarred and need to heal over and change in the same way. Yeah. So the the fear here, what's some interesting way this transitions is it's not a real feature of the Victorian chapter, even though they're going to the same battle. Now, to be clear, I'm sure there's lots of fear on those Ironborn ships. Just because Victorian himself is a bit of a weirdo doesn't mean the He's rest of the Ironborn. Too. He is. Yeah, he just deals with it differently. He's more like he just <laughs> he faces it like with an attitude. He's like, I'm not afraid. Yeah, right. Yeah, you kind of are, yeah. but but he he handles yeah. it pretty well. Like he certainly isn't the type to freeze up or anything like that. But yeah, he's he's not going to admit to fear. Where Barrison is more giving into it and living within it. Victorian is sort of fighting against it and doing a good job. If we're being honest, it doesn't seem to motivate him too much in in direct ways. Though in other ways, it's entirely he's an entirely fearsome, uh, fearful person in terms of like his superstitions and his attitude towards women. It's all fear. <laughs> so this chapter really humanizes fear. And I think that's a, a thing that is a huge contrast because you go from people who should be afraid, but we have a character who's not sympathetic to that, who's aggressive right. against that to someone who completely understands it and who fully gives into it. Now, Tyrion is the more quote unquote normal person here because most of us aren't warriors and Tyrion is not a warrior. We're not like Tyrion either, but he's more normal in that. Oh my God, we're about to, we're about to face all this. And he's, he's doing things that are, that you shouldn't do, but you can't help yourself. He's like rationalizing. He's like counting the dangers, you know, (laughs) it's like, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to do it, Tyrion. I think you're more working yourself up more. (laughs) And that speaks to his inexperience with these such a situation. And Barristan just handles so well. So I think that's something that's very different about this battle compared to the others in the Song of Ice and Fire. At Blackwater, we had Tyrion, Davos, and Sansa. Tyrion's on one. Tyrion's on the fight on one side. Davos on the other. Sansa's giving us inside look at the Red Keep. Even though Tyrion made a brave charge, though, and Davos fought a hand-to-hand battle on the deck of his own ship, these are not warriors. Like Tyrion's right. not a warrior spirit guy, and certainly Davos isn't. He's a smuggler. He's a father. He's a hand. Right. Uh, so when we've had warrior POVs. They've been like one-on-ones or small-scale engagements. Barristan fighting Kraz, you mentioned. That's a perfect example. Victorian fighting Sir Talbert Sari, you know, catching his sword in his hand. Those are build-ups to seeing these true warrior types in large battles. And that's something, I think, to be interested in and curious about and to be excited about as well, perhaps. <laughs> For sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, let's talk about prayer. We we said we'd get into that. This is a good time for that. He has a his own prayer. We the, the chapter takes entirely takes place entirely in front of these gates, but he has a few memories of the very recent past, meaning like earlier in the day or the previous night. Uh, he's thinking of himself praying. He says, "You come for all men in the end." He had prayed, "But if it please you, spare me and mine today, and gather up the spirits of our foes instead." And that's he's talking to the stranger. Flick commenter Rolling Knight had a great. Uh, comparison take. Uh, this is another example of mirroring or paralleling. The That's a lot like the TV version of Sirio's line to Arya saying, what do we say to the god of death? Not today. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's very much true. This, it's, this Barristan's version is like 
the polite like please you know <laughs> whereas Sirius is like has the like the independent attitude like no not today but Barristan's is more of the like you're the higher power you just say I have no say in this <laughs> I who am I to say not today I'm a human you're the gods I can't right. like you're not going to listen to me <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how prayer and and yielding to a higher power can assuage fear let me let me throw out a few bullet points and I'll let y'all run away with this concept this is what we we're just saying with Tyrion. Like Tyrion is is going. How could I possibly survive this? He's thinking of the danger. He's calculating the thing. It's like Han Solo captured this very well when he said, <laughs> "Never tell me the odds." Like once you're in a situation, your odds of survival, knowing your odds of survival, don't help you. It makes it worse, <laughs> right? <laughs> you just got to get through it. So the idea kind of is. This is kind of getting into the nuances of. A little bit of how faith, quote, unquote, works, which maybe isn't the right word, but whatever. If you accept that your fate is in the hands of a higher power or powers, the math, the odds, they're irrelevant. There is no math. There's no odds of survival. Mm -hmm. It's completely irrelevant. The gods have, or gods have decided when you're going to die. The rest is window dressing. It doesn't matter if there's a thousand arrows flying at you. If the gods have decided you're not going to die, Jon Snow's not going to be hit by those arrows when charging at the Battle of Bastards, so... You're, he's going to get really lucky, according to Dave and Dan. Yeah. And yeah, but that's it's that, it's that kind of thing. But if you have that attitude, it's actually, it makes sense in a way that mm -hmm. if you truly believe, sincerely believe that the gods will decide when you're going to die, things like, how could I possibly survive that is, a, is an irrelevant thought. And that's a lot, right. that's really hard for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. So Barristan surrenders to that inevitability. Tyrion can't help but wrap his mind up in it. And he's intent on making Penny see it that way. And that's something we talked about last time. It's really kind of off topic, but I think Tyrion had it wrong. Penny, he doesn't, Penny doesn't need to be told the odds. <laughs> she right. needs to understand they're in danger, but she doesn't need to have all the precision like that. Doesn't help. <laughs> and Victorian sees it as an opportunity. Victorian's like, I'm going to show the gods how awesome I am. As you're talking about that, I'm thinking about when Barristan was praying and he was thinking about how his gods are far away across the sea, but he was told that they would follow him wherever he would go and that they would protect him wherever wherever he would go. It made me think in contrast to Vic, we've got he's got Makoro physically at his side and he's seen the things that this red priest has been able to accomplish for him recently. And so he's kind of got a little bit more of that assurance and ego boost because he's reaped some of the rewards of what this priest has been able to offer and to do physically, while Barristan's gods are seemingly far away. And he has this hope and idea that they might be able to help him. But I think we're at this interesting point in A Song of Ice and Fire where we're actually going to start seeing some of this religion really come into play. And we're actually going to start yes. seeing some of the benefits of people who've been praying all along this way. We're going to, I think that... Um, that's going to really shift the tide, especially when we're talking about the Red God and things like that. So I think that while it may not necessarily make a huge difference in this battle in particular, it might, but it might not. I think that down the road at some of these other larger conflicts as well, we might also see some very real, just like some very real outcomes based off of this seemingly mystical idea of a God or gods or some higher power. Yeah. Uh, and Zach, that's really well said. Zach, before we get your answer on this, let me throw in one more example. Uh, another character who expresses an attitude about their gods, like a Victorian, sort of adopting new gods along on the fly here because he's very superstitious and he doesn't so really he's... question that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but we also have someone like the Red Lamb who we're going to talk about the Squires and specifically in a minute. But so he's, this is a, almost a segue. 
But uh, he is the one that stands up and is like, if I go before my God, I'm going to break his crook over my yeah. knee and then yell at him <laughs> like, why bold. did you make your people lambs when the world is, world is full of wolves? So he's got some like very much like angst about reality. That's something yeah. very realistic. There's definitely people who have, who are strong believers in a higher power mm-hmm. in, a, in a God who get angry because they see the world as unfair and blame the creators of the world for that unfairness. And that's, that's something that humans have to deal with. And anyway, so I'd love to hear your take on all that, Zach. I think that putting the sort of scaffolding of trying to understand how the world, at the end of things where it's uh thank you. I feel like you're, I feel like you're going in. So like you're like leaning <laughs> where, where, where it becomes uh when you're at the end of it and you're guessing whether or not there's a greater power or you're relying on the mathematics of a situation. And like you were saying, there are none at that point when there's so much chaos, there's, there, there's real, there really isn't any. And so I think that if we look at Barristan, for example, the way that he prepares himself, his process, think of it as your ritual, your routine. Mm. Cleaning himself so well, better than he's ever been scrubbed, is not necessarily going to make him better for battle. But I think that preparing yourself in a way that is true to you, that if you've thought enough, like I haven't to the level of his character, but if you, I think George obviously has, and that's probably why he only writes in very specific ways on his word star processor in a very specific environment. It's kind of like the same thing that Barry does. Like he sets himself up for the right amount of success whenever he's putting his fingers on the keys, whether it's the gods coming into play, whether it's the universe itself, whatever you believe in, he's doing all the necessary preparation to give himself the best outcome possible in this situation. And so I think Vic does it in different ways. Obviously, he doesn't think about it as deeply as Barristan does. Not many characters do, but we see other characters do things like sharpening their swords or practicing right before battle, things like that. Like These are all different things that some of them have physical consequences to what you're doing, and some of them have metaphysical consequences to what you're doing. And I think that we saw Barristan doing things that can help him physically in, in preparation, and then we see him talking to the gods in a manner that is, to his own opinion, the most appropriate he's even going that far he's even going that far to say i'm not gonna i'm not gonna even give my god the opportunity to think that i'm second guessing he says that the the quote um where he was interfacing with hightower where it was like i'm not going to give the option for god to even see me consider myself losing because i don't even want to give god the idea that i'm considering (laughs) losing because i don't even want the idea to go into his head i think that it might be something that we figure out one day in human history but I think that whenever you're in a society that hasn't figured out science and that is going to sleep every night without city lights blinding out the scale and the brightness and the overall geometric complexity and impossibleness of the sky, of the stars, you're going to have to think of some stuff to fill in the blanks between what I can do to anticipate what happens to me and what the universe is doing to me. Ooh, yeah. So I think that the... I think that the gods are are a way, whether or not they come into physical interplay in the story, I'm really excited to see if there's some kind of result with that. But either way, I think that the way that they are using them or not using them, the way that Vic anticipates pleasing them or not pleasing them really just comes down to doing your best personal homework to set yourself up for the best level of success whenever you're doing your thing. So for mm. Vic, I, I don't, I know that it's not as patient and it might not give the best result because I think that ultimately what it leads to is a little bit more confusion in the battlefield. I think that Barry has 
the upper hand as far as having a clear mind and the possibility of being most effective. But at the same time, he could get hit by an arrow. We don't yeah. really know. Yeah. I still think that Vic's way of doing it is effective for him, but it also just, I think it, it's a lot more shallow and it yeah. opens up possibilities for him to see something happen that's wrong and then to stop believing. And then he's, he's going to fall apart in his own way because he's relying on it in such a strong way. Whereas Barristan is more so uh, submitting at every step of the process. Yeah. But I think that if stuff goes right for Vic, I think that momentum could make him even more savage in moments where that savagery could give him the upper hand. Yeah, because he wants to prove, yeah, because he's, if, he, if he thinks that his destructiveness, his aggressiveness is pleasing to Relore and the Drowned yeah. God, then he's going to go full bore as much you as keep he can. going. Well, think about the stuff yeah. that he's doing with Makoro yeah, and getting the hand. Exactly. Like, it's, it's, he's so <laughs> dangerous on the way to... He's way more dangerous than he would have he been otherwise. Momentum oh, yeah. Going into way more. His confidence is off the charts right now. He like If we yeah. think back to the Victorian chapter, he's like, with this horn, I can win the world. Like, what? <laughs> like, where did yeah. that come from? What are you doing, man? Like uh, this guy. <laughs> but I think he thinks that kind of ambition is pleasing to the gods. Like they certainly, to the to the, the, mm-hmm. the values he was raised with, yes, that is like you should, he should be thinking that way. Whereas Barristan, his values are more like he worships like the god of chivalry in, a, in essence. Like he, those are his values. Where Barristan, a Victorian worships the god of depredations and raiding, you know, and all this other yeah. stuff of the powers that be are uh, demanding. Um, and they and uh, imperious. Um, where and if he does really well after burning that ship full of those girls, then he's going to believe that that savagery is being rewarded. Yeah. True, you're very. That's a great. Yeah, that's a dark thought, but I think you're completely right. Wow, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if he does well, then who knows what he'll do after that? Yeah, it's, it's like it's, it's just, just going to encourage him. You're totally right. Like success, six. When you're this is the other. That's the the other side of this whole like true sincere belief. In higher powers is when you surrender to that sort of fate to understand that destiny is what they say it is. If you believe that this is what they want, if they, if you sincerely believe the gods want you to rain destruction down on your enemies and enslave your enemies, then, woo, that's that's mm-hmm. a scary mindset for your enemies to have because you can't exactly or talk them out. Burn- of or burn your daughter if yeah. it works outside of Marine. Yeah, they or, think sorry, out of Winterfell. Yeah, how do you like? How do you rationalize that? How do you deal with that? How do you make friends with that? Like, I don't know that you can. And that's that's a big problem going on in Marine in general. Like, how do you? We've we've gone back and forth in this a lot. Like, you can't compromise with slavers because halfway between right. slavery and not slavery is some slavery, <laughs> and that's not acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is. It's like, yeah, you're not compromising. No, that's there is. There shouldn't be a compromise here. <laughs> it's not right. Good that you brought up Hightower here. I wonder about that. He's certainly someone that Barristan thinks about. He's certainly an um, important figure in his history, someone that he probably looked up to in moments like this, at least at some point in his life, even though when he was told that, it's possible Barristan hadn't even killed a man yet. He had fought mm-hmm. attorney champion. He was attorney champion, but it wasn't until after Summerhall that he killed Maylis the Monstrous, and maybe that was his first real war. And there's a difference between being attorney champion and being a famous warrior because, well, one is you've proven yourself in battle. But I think more importantly, on the human level, one means you're a, you've killed and the other means, right. well, it doesn't necessarily mean you haven't, but 
Attorney champion does not imply killing. Uh, it just you wouldn't be surprised if attorney champion has done some killing. <laughs> but uh, there's nice definitely scale, cases. They almost killed people. <laughs> right. Like when when Rhaegar won that tournament at 17, he probably hadn't killed anyone yet. Right. Like when would the prince had killed killed someone? Like especially that prince. Right. Magor, sure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> someone like that, yeah, but Rhaegar, I don't think so. And what is that, what do you think that means, like in a world like this, like in our world, it's a real, it's a big deal, I mean, we don't look at, well, not everybody does, but um, even like people who have to occasionally kill as part of their work, as part of their duty, like soldiers, some, you know, even that can be, people can look on, look really down on that, even though it's, uh, it's sometimes it's a necessary part of life. But it really does kind of, someone who can't speak to it from experience, I feel like that would really change your mindset, uh, maybe permanently, mm-hmm. if, you've, if you've ended someone else's life um, in mm-hmm. combat, especially. Like maybe if you're a doctor or something like that, it's different where it's, you, you're helping someone in their last moments. That's not what I mean. I mean, like you, they would have been fine, other, uh, you know, if not for you <laughs> or something like that. Right. What, do you, right. what do we think about that? Like having the attitude that you have killed someone. Because a lot of these, a lot of these people in this who are facing this battle, Barristan's knights, for example, the squires, they're our next topic. None of them have ever killed anyone, as far as we know. Right, right. It makes me think a lot about like the. I kind of have two thoughts here, and the first is kind of that whole interface with death. I think that the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, more so than like in our modern day society, have a much more intimate look at death, and I think that death is much more prevalent and apparent and people see death all the time, whether it's the fighting pits or it's for survival out on the battlefield or whether it's like their loved ones. And so I think that death is a little bit more of a intimate experience. But I think I was just kind of thinking about Theon a little bit and his experience with those killing those kids um, mm. that were meant to be Bran and Rickon and how he kind of thinks back on that often and kind of the guilt that he bears because it's these innocent people that he took out and, you know, he didn't physically do it with his own hands, but it was like one of his first experiences ending someone's life for a purpose that was purely his own and nothing to do with those little kids. You know, I think that. It's when he knew personally, right? That's a big deal too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a really important detail. And so I have a bunch of jumbled thoughts. Maybe you can help me pull them together, but I just think that. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. There <laughs> is a lot of opportunity to see death in this world. This, uh, like even this. like animals, right? Like even in our in our lives, like most of us, mm-hmm. you know, if we don't live on a farm, uh, most of us don't even see the animals killed before we eat them, and um, like that. No, we don't. Know, right? Like that's like these. Or even like our pets, you take them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's so true. you know, I think it's a little bit more of their job to see it this way, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's an easy yeah. thing to do. But I think that's kind of what Barrison was getting at in his speech when he was talking about love them if you can. This is a sacred... I would infer that this is more of like a sacred duty of we're not going to dehumanize the enemy simply because we're going to chop them down. You know, this is... I think that this is more of like... I don't want to call it a a privilege because it's not a privilege at all, but I think that they have this more intimate, sacred view of what they're doing versus somebody like Victorion who does it for sport Barrison has that as a member of the King's Guard, like this is my duty and this is my opportunity and this is my like I think he sees that as very sacred is the only word that I can really think of right now. And so as he's trying to teach teach his little youngins and younglings that, you know, this is something that you're gonna be doing 
have the right mindset about it. Otherwise, you're going to turn into a killer, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, or systematically, organizationally, that uh, Vic has to survive in a place like the Iron Islands. So his relationship with the things that they do, I think, is uh, part of how he's coping with all the savagery that that takes place from living there and the way they have their class system and the way that thralls are treated necessarily. But I think it's all sort of leading to the same thing, whereas Barry has his style of doing it. He's on one end of uh, piety and then Fix on the other end of abject savagery. And then we have people in Essos that do it in their own way. I think that um, even in the context of a time period that's stylistically adapted here, that that sees simple infections or broken bones or uh, like what happened to Lamy lead to death so quickly. I think that even then, putting myself in the shoes of one of his trainees, having to go into this fight and swing my sword and kill someone, not just one time, but as much as I can so I stay alive is a really scary thought. Yeah, And that that once you do it one time, I feel like it would get a lot easier. And part of me feels like it might become kind of satisfying, which is pretty scary too. In, yeah, in like Sandor Clegane says that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, he he it, he kind of laughs at it, but you can tell that he's just that's just how he deals with it. I think on some levels, he's not he's right. not actually happy that he killed all those people. Right, exactly. It's just, it's but I feel like there's a part of you as an animal in that scenario when you're trying to protect yourself and stay alive that I think sort of might might naturally come in that place and that. Vic has really leaned into it in order to stay effective and, and Barry is trying to give them advice to stay sort of like separated from that animalistic nature so they can continue to be aware of their environment and to try to be as effective as possible from a mental standpoint, which I think that he believes will lead to greater success and better safety overall in the end, which I think mm-hmm. is part of the reason why he, he insists that if they can find it in themselves to love the people that they're killing to love them because keeping a positive attitude for better or for worse within all of this and something that you have to do, even though it's so bad might overall lead to a better conclusion in the end, even though you have to kill someone. Yeah, that's really well said. And it goes back to what we were saying about staying inside your head versus trying to keep outside your head mm-hmm. in a moment like this, when your yeah. internal thoughts are over threatened to overwhelm you. Yeah. If you're, if you don't, if you give into that fear too much, if you like embrace it in the wrong way or go, you know, the way Victorian is maybe telling his men to do it, that's, I, you know, again, I'm no expert on psychology, but that seems to me like a path that leads to you enjoying killing or, or it's the wrong right. thing to get used to. Barrison's like, be, get used to the fear, give into the fear, ride that wave, don't fight it. Um, where Victorian is saying, yes, you know, em, embrace the killing, embrace that aspect of it, embrace that part. It's like, Palpatine. Yeah. <laughs> embrace your hatred. Uh, so that is, yeah, that's really well said. And, and it's super interesting with, with young people like this, uh, what they're saying, we're not in their heads. Like, are, is it bravado? Are they really going to, how are they actually going to do when they get out on that battlefield? Okay. So here's a quote, uh, Barristan Squires. This is pretty cool. There's a lot of symbolism and conflict work, and this is just a deep topic here. Tumko Lo carried the three-headed dragon banner of House Targaryen, red on black. Larak Balash bore the white fork standard of the Kingsguard, seven silver swords encircling a golden crown. To the Red Lamb, Selmy had given a great silver-banded warhorn to sound commands across the battlefield. His other boys remained at the Great Pyramid. So it's kind of like a seven versus three aspect here. We got seven silver swords, and there's these three squires. Barristan thinks about Oh, here's a great take from Nina. Barrison brings up the white bull. That same reference we had a minute ago, Hightower saying, don't, you know, don't speak of 
bat- uh, defeat before battle, but in specifically um, strategy-wise, he says it's folly to attack a large force when you have walls guarding you. But of course, that's a little bit of irony because Gerald Hightower died in that same seven versus three <laughs> fight at the Tower of Joy when he didn't stay inside the tower. He could have stayed in the tower and used the fortifications, but he and his two other Kingsguard came out to face a numerically superior foe. So, but Barristan doesn't know that. <laughs> but Barristan also notes that it's the Hour of the Wolf, uh, which is neat if we're thinking about seven versus three, Tower of Joy, you know, obviously think of Ned Stark. And we've already brought up Ned Stark, right? We already talked about the whole you know, fear is the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. And that theme gets a lot deeper here because we've already had a lot to connect Barristan and Ned. A ton. I'm sure you guys connected Barristan and Ned at least a few times when Ned, when Barristan is trying to be hand, he's fish out of water. Like it's, it's sort of that again, but with some important differences. But uh, my point here, Ned uh, talks to Brandon that way, his son. Now, Barristan thinks of these guys these kids, these squires, as his sons. He's the closest he's ever going to have to sons. And here he is teaching them in a manner very similar to Ned Stark as they're going out into the world to face danger. Again, we have reason to think of Sandor. You might say, why, why would you put your sons in danger like this, leading them out into battle? Well, as Sandor would say, it's the world that's dangerous, not these decisions. Like, Barristan Selmy didn't create the siege, didn't fling the corpses, didn't free the dragons. Like, this is... <laughs> he's the one trying to deal with it. So first take on these guys, we're going to talk about them individually, but uh, as this relation, his relationship to them and all that. I think it's cool. I think that the, they're representative of different places and SOS or the surrounding SOC areas that uh, in a way that satisfies me and their different fighting styles, I think are, it's, it's what's necessary when you're in a place that has all these different kinds of pit fighters. And, um, I don't know. Did we get it confirmed whether or not he actually knighted them? I know they didn't. Yeah, he to. did. Um, he he it's, did it's confirmed them. when he when he goes to meet the uh, Archibald and uh, mm-hmm. Garrus after they've been captured after they were arrested after the dragon taming incident. He mm-hmm. mentions yeah, that they he knighted them. Yeah. Yeah. Word. Yeah. Okay. So it's one little mean, side joke here. We don't know what Red Lamb's real name is. So he's like, he's Sir Red yeah. Lamb. And that's an interesting little comparison too, because like in the Victorian chapter, he doesn't bother to learn their names, right? He's like Bastard's Bastard mm-hmm. Boy and the, I can't remember the third one myself. But the Brute, right, of course. And, but this is not, <laughs> of course, this is not him not bothering to learn Red Lamb's name. That's just what that guy wants to be called. So this is, it, it's a inversion. You know, it's like one is a nickname that you've just given the guy because you don't know what to call him. One is his preferred nickname. Either way, we don't know his real name, but it's still one is a mark of respect. One is a mark of contempt. Well, I was just thinking too about when you're saying that because he spends so much time thinking on whether or not he actually wants to knight them because this is a little bit less of a traditional sense. I mean, if this doesn't go well for them, then he's thinking about how these newly knighted people will kind of be a little bit sullied by this experience because they were knighted by... Barristan Selmy, who staged a coup, essentially. And <laughs> if things don't go well, then that's bad for them because the sacred thing that he did for them, they will always be a little bit tainted by the fact that it was done by somebody like Barristan Selmy, who could be such a traitor um, in this he experience. Such a high and, standard for himself. <laughs> but then I think that like that, as he's thinking about them as his sons and the closest to son, thing to sons he'll ever have, and just kind of the weight behind 
how he handles himself in this situation, how he's preparing them and how he's thinking about knighting them and how he finally does it and how he rides into battle with these guys. I mean, you know, we've been talking a lot about just him and how he approaches the gravity of the situation with the true honor of a knight of the King's Garden. I think that that's something that we were talking about on our show a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, can't you just like drop all of these trappings of power here? Like we're in essentially the wild West. Like why do we have to be doing everything to a T? <laughs> can't we just like let go of all of these honorifics and just fight? And Barristan holds all of these things very down to these people that he's with and what he's wearing and all those different kinds of things. And I think that, it's cool to get all of this from his perspective because he is such a storied guy instead of somebody who's never been in a battle before, like Sansa hanging on the Red Keep. You know, we kind of yeah. get the power aspect of it too. And we don't, you say, we don't get to see these guys, these new knights, we don't get to see their perspective. And so we don't know what they're, they're thinking, but we can imagine. And Barrison having like this fatherly love, not love, but, like the fatherly feelings toward them, I think is a nice little piece that we've, we've got in this chapter. Yeah. At this point, I feel like if, if he is really thinking that they're as good as he's saying that they are in our points of view, then he's done a pretty good job on them. And I think the fact that he's done that with, like I said, this variety of human, with the, the variety of their fighting style, is very sweetly satisfying in the story for Barry, especially if he leaves us soon, because it's a great sort of last thing to leave onto the world and show how effective he is. As I feel like that's a great transition between someone who's a really powerful competitor, if they can be an equally powerful coach. Mm. If you can coach people from Lazar, from uh, a Giscari person, and someone from the Basilisk Isles all the same way at the same time in the same sort of module, that that's really impressive. And as far as from a writing flourish, I think that it's uh, just again, satisfying that George gave us people that fight so differently than a typical sword, shield, dirk combo and uh, was basically able to make them the uh, person worthy of being a Kingsguard in their own specific way. Like that's very, it, it's, he's fish out of water and marine in the first place. So to, so to continue those tra- traditions far away from Westeros, it's, it's very satisfying. Yeah, well said. So specifically, too, we've got Tumco Lowe, of course, Red Lamb and Larrick the Lash. And like you said, they're each have different cultural ethnic backgrounds. And that's going to we're going to come back to that topic in a minute because the unity of cultures is a big, big theme topic. It's a big connecting point between Danny and John's arcs as well. And for the ultimate humanity versus the, the, the world of the living versus the world of the dead, that's a huge theme for that. Uh, so but sticking here, we have a lot of color work here that I find interesting. Tumco Lowe is carrying the Targaryen banner. It's black and red. He's a basilisk islander. He's sort of um, a black knight in a sense, not uh, in personality, but in literal coloring. And he's compared to Jamie Lannister by Barris. And I wonder, and of course that's in context of his skill, but I wonder if there's more to it. I wonder if he's going to, I don't know, become a Kingslayer. He could maybe kill Hisdar or even Mm-hmm. Uh, Aegon, meaning young Griff. Somehow that seems. You a think it'll go that stretch. far? Probably not, but it's it just occurred to me as an idea, and I wanted to throw that out there. Or maybe something more gruesome, like he loses his hand too. But <laughs> I hope not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he puts a whip there instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then Larak. He's got Larak there to teach him how to do that, right? So yeah. And Larak wears the or carries the Kingsguard banner, and he's Giscari. And the Red Lamb is Lazarine, and he carries the Warhorn. So it's kind of interesting that. He's carrying the war horn. That's a parallel. We've got a dragon horn and this war horn and Tyrion is sort of caught between them. That's, that's something we talked about in the Tyrion episode. Are we supposed to think, do you, are you, is anyone worried 
about the old line lambs to the slaughter? Are we worried about red lamb? I mean, these are dangerous jobs. Carrying the banners, that makes you a target. And I don't know. What do you guys think about these three, like their odds of survival? Do you feel good about them? Do you think maybe their temporary characters maybe set up to cause us some, some tragedy or maybe a little of both because there's three of them? Hard to say, huh? Man. Yeah, honestly, I think it, we could safely say a little bit of both. Uh, I think that we also might be looking at them just perishing. Yeah. It really depends, I think, on Barristan's overall health because I think that, I don't know. I don't, it depends on well, how well he trained them, whether or not they're going to stick around with Danny. Yeah. All this. Yeah. Like if they're coming back and if they're successful. Their personalities, like it's their training and like what, like, will they maintain loyalty? Like, are they going to continue to respect right. this? That's this what cause I mean. Like, and, yeah. Like she freed how, them. So that's a lot. Are they into those oaths? How much are they yeah. really into those oaths? As far as surviving through the battle, they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. I hope that they survive long enough for the plans to be effective. But, I mean, compared to other people's fighting skills, if they've been tutored by Barristan so well for so long, I feel like they have a better chance than anyone else. It's hard to say, though. Yeah. It's hard to say because I think the overall attitude, we touched on this at the beginning of the show, your overall attitude toward Marine, you might want to not memorize the names of Resnick, Moresnick, or Skaz. <laughs> you, you might want to feel differently about these characters versus people that we're meeting in Westeros just because of the nature of it being at the end of, of the Dance of Dragons and you're carrying so much momentum trying to get the story. The names are unfamiliar. It's hard to recognize compared to everyone else that we've been with for books. And so they might suffer the same fate. But at the same time, I think that maybe people might have felt that way about someone like Masande at first or Grey Worm at first and look how important they are in the story. Mm. Or uh, even someone like Strong Bellas, you know? Oh, yeah. Hey, it's really hard to say. I hope that they survive because I like how... I like how they're representing these different regions, not for the sake of them representing it, but because I think that it makes the story more rich because of it. Mm. And I want to know more about the Basilisk Isles. Like, I want more context with those people. And so, if, if Tumco survives, then it's great for the story. He could tell us some things. Yeah, just um, a little bit would be a lot. <laughs> a little bit would be a yeah, lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you think? Not really much more to add other than I think there's going to be a lot of slot in this battle and I think that we've got to lose a lot of people. They're prime for it. <laughs> well, yeah, like we've, in order to make it legit and as terrible as things are being set up to be, I think that we need to have some carnage and I don't necessarily, like you say, there's some interesting guys and I don't necessarily want to see them go, but let's just add people to the mix that we'll feel something for if they, make if very they sad. go. Yeah, and like make Barristan feel He's sad, like, oh know? my God, my faith and everything and my preparation is going wrong. My, they're my sons. And they're right. they're they're getting cut down in front of me. It's a little bit of a more pessimistic view, but I mean, a lot of stuff has got to go down. So yeah, let's expand this a little bit. We earlier were talking about the four horsemen imagery and how that was such a big deal with the Astapor chapter and going forward, and how that's maintained because those those aspects the the famine, plague, war, and uh, civil war that's different variations on that. We have no need to rehash all that, but the point was there's a lot of these things were represented by different colors. And a lot of those same colors are present here. So I almost think this is like the four horsemen are turned around and back on those who unleashed them. It's like the Yunkish Whoa. unleashed the four horsemen on, and the Astapori unleashed the four horsemen on Mirene and Danny and her folk. And they've turned it around on them because you got Barristan striking the first blow while riding a silver horse. Not only is he representing the Kingsguard color nicely with his white armor and his gold chasings and his silver horse, which is the, exactly the colors on the banner, but 
the first horse is supposed to be uh, white slash gray for mm-hmm. conquest. And that's exactly what he's got. And then you've got things like the red horse is civil war, which is the red lamb here. And he's at war. He's <laughs> against He's like angry at his own people. You've got the plague uh, is usually represented by green or or white. Now, we've already brought up white, but they're all green boys. And that was like, oh, maybe there was no green until I thought of that one. And funny, because you one of y'all uh, said that phrase earlier in this episode. And in, yeah. until you said that, I was like, oh, there's the green. They're green boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, the the black is famine, as we've been over in before. And uh, with the black stone representing um, the cannibalism and all that. So there's a lot of thematic resonance here, even if we don't fully unpack it. I just want to draw your attention to it and mm-hmm. to show that George is just always doing this. Like, <laughs> when, mm-hmm. I wait till we get yeah. to some other stuff later in this episode. Nina got some uh, figured out that all the places the, car- the different armies are standing is very resonant as well. That's going to be fun. So any thoughts on the four horsemen imagery here, the karmic turnaround of that, or just uh, anything you want to say about uh, this, the symbolism and colors? Y'all going to lose because of it, because the karmic turnaround. <laughs> and I'm really, I'm glad that, that George is going for the big references in order to decorate these parts of the story. I mean, that, that's about as biblical as it gets. Yeah, that is, you know? talk about it that's, gets biblical. That's that's the yeah. finale, you know? That's the big finale. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they say, like, it's time to get biblical. Yeah, they're, they're, we're... Biblical <laughs> on young guy and all the poor noblemen and they're, they're fighters that they don't really feel that passionately about fighting for them. Don't you love that strategy? Just take out the, the, the boss module and they'll scatter. Yeah, (laughs) that's a great segue because we're going into some of these. We're going to have a section set aside for more direct mirroring and parallels. We've already obviously spoken to several parallels and mirroring techniques. These are ones that are a little more direct than that. We'll use that to jump off to some more discussions. Example, in Victorian's chapter, we have this line. It will kill us too then, said the boy. Victorian did not oft forgive a thrall for talking out of turn, but the boy was young, no more than 20 and soon to die besides. He let it pass. And here in this chapter, we have Gogor smashed a fist against his chest. Gogor not fall back. Never. Then Gogor died, the old knight thought, soon. But this was not the time nor place for that argument. He let it pass. That same he let it pass. This guy's going to die soon. <laughs> so, uh, yes. That's, I don't have much to say about that other than to draw your attention perfect. to the structural. Yeah. yeah. Well, what George is doing, I think, is he... He's, first of all, it's not just being clever. He's not just, ha-ha, I made these chapters so similar and snuck it past you. Like, that's just whatever. But it's, it's cool, but it, you can't do a lot with it other than go, ooh, that's cool. That's not what he's doing, though. He's showing you by having these structures so similarly, he sh- it really highlights the differences. We look at the similarity right. between Barristan and Victorian. We talked about that. We've also highlighted massive differences between them. And that's by, yeah. by having similar structures, it really highlights the similarities and differences because the, um, the structure isn't something we have to parse. That part at least is settled. Uh, any, yeah. any, any thoughts about that? I think it's cool. <laughs> Word. No, I think it's one of those things where I think drawing, it's just like drawing to the strength of George R. R. Martin's writing style. I think yeah. that's where I would usually categorize, put those things in rather than necessarily inferring like what's going to happen next based off of that. But I think that like the strength of his writing style and just how intricate the story is and how you can see it as surface level or as detailed as you'd like it like it to be yeah yeah i think and i think it's i think i love that the that's a such close point of seeing which style is more effective in its own way 
Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm right here offshore. I'm right here about to charge out from Port Cullis. We're saying the same thing. It's like giving the same baseline decoration, like you said, to give the best or to give us the same baseline so you can really see the differences. It's like putting something on a white sheet and on a white sheet and then showing what it is. It can really stand out against Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Sort of the same idea there. And um, I don't know if one is more effective than the other. I know we've been talking about the different styles and like how they believe and how they prepare for action. Believe yeah. that the good thing is more effective, but it's not always more effective. And I think that with the nature of the world is uh, that all these other things are a part of the puzzle as well. It's not just how you prepare it or how you believe it or how you think or how you feel. It's like the landscape in which you're entering at the same time. Mm. So I, I don't really know what will shake up, shake up shake out of this based on just these differences. But I think once we put in all the other details that we can probably get close to an answer. And again, like I said before, I think that everything's kind of evenly matched, even though they're not evenly matched because of who's on what side and who's deciding what. And that the big, the big like a uh, wild card in this is Daniel mm-hmm. and how the dragons will react. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Another thing they have in common here I like is uh, both Victorian and Barristan's plans have the same sort of kill as many slavers as you can and free the slaves. Like, yeah, okay. yeah you can't really argue with that. <laughs> it's, right. It's like, <laughs> right. yep, okay. That one's Victorian's like, okay, that part of your plan, yeah, go for it. That one we like. <laughs> even we even we can find something to agree with Victorian on. You know. <laughs> uh, another, this one's not so funny, but it is parallel, another parallel example. Another quote from Barristan is, you may cry out for your mother, pray to gods you thought you had forgotten, howl obscenities that you never dreamed could pass your lips. All this has happened too. Well, the first line of Tyrion 2 is a dying man screaming for his mother. Yeah, and that's an example of like ultimate like fear that takes you to a place that you never thought you'd go to. Like a lot of these people we've heard, like they're screaming out for their mothers and they know we, we were, were sort of told or hinted at the fact that their mothers have probably been dead for decades some, in some cases, yet they're still, this is still where their mind goes in their final moments. And it's just terrifying and, and something we cannot at all understand. Now, to lighten the mood after that, <laughs> we had a catch um, uh, from that same quote from Stefan B. Uh, from our Flick channel. The line, you will hurl obscenities you never dreamed could pass your lips. He, we just quoted. Well, who? We saw that, didn't we not? With Asha and Middle Little, who called her the C-word while fighting outside <laughs> Deepwood Mott and then apologized to her later, like, sincerely. Like, he didn't have to do that. Uh, it wouldn't have, she would have, she was a little surprised that he did. But, it, but that's a good example, almost certainly, of someone who, he was surprised that those, those insults <laughs> came from his lips and his battle lust or whatever. But that's actually really neat to think about that. Just the things you do. We, this is, speaks oh, to our earlier, sure. our earlier subject of becoming someone you're not to do these awful things. Um, or who you, got, you really are. Ooh, yeah, okay. Right. Good point. <laughs> Very good point. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. What do you all have to say about that? I feel like if you're getting pushed to the edge and enough stuff's happening that you haven't previously had to go to that place yet. Mm. If you do go to that place, you might say the C word. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. The C word's in there somewhere deep. Hopefully that uh, you know that's where it ends. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I can imagine that. I can imagine being if I don't want to have to drop down my sword on something that's soft and fleshy and bony. I've never done that. No, you know, even even when cutting meat and stuff, it's very controlled. It's 
way less exciting. And so the thought of doing that over and over again while protecting yourself and having that kind of a buzzing mentality around you. You can imagine someone like Barristan, especially if it smells like shit the whole time. You can really <laughs> imagine someone like like Barristan even, you know, like breaking down in some way, dropping some of the formalities and, and honestly showing us the side of Barry that would make us most excited. Yeah, and sure. being, being fierce. Because you know he is. Yeah. It was like that Kras little moment when he fought Kraz when it's like Barristan the bull. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but even yeah. then, that's just a little bit, you know? It's yeah, just a, a little bit of Barry. Like, what does he do? Yeah. Right. What does he do? Like thinks of himself as bold for once instead of there being so go. hard on himself as he usually is. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, everybody cited that line. It's one of the best like, ooh, yeah, badass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's like George is jumping out of the page and giving us what we want for a second. It's like, yeah. uh, I hate to go always go to Harry Potter, but it's like when uh, everyone was looking up at Dumbledore in the, uh, the pit of uh, the veil and like everyone's scared. You mm-hmm. know? And then like, and it's like, oh crap, like you're jumping out of the page and you're giving us the sort of the thing that we wanted you to give us the whole time. It's a t- almost the fourth wall. It's oh, it's not, it isn't, but it, it, you yeah. can, exactly. Yeah. it exactly. has that feel yeah. without actually technically doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't do it too much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you can't do it too much. We're, we're too sensitive for that. You got to just go around a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Something else that uh, I'm really surprised I missed but luckily one of our commenters mentioned it. Uh, the flying corpses, actually a couple, couple commenters mentioned it. Flying corpses. We have actually seen this before, and it's in a battle that we keep using to compare this to Blackwater. We saw the Antler Men, right? They mm-hmm. were <laughs> they were flung yeah. by Trebuchet. It was, of course, it was the other way around. They were flung from inside the walls, out of the walls. But it's still pretty similar, right? That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, and oh, and Ashea's writing Sweet Robin, make the bad men fly. That's a very similar concept yeah. too. Very good catch. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, really yeah. good. Yeah, mm-hmm. fall very far. Yeah. <laughs> Fly, fall. Yeah, it's, it's kind of this starts to become similar when it's that high up in the air, right? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> and speaking of being that high up in the air, good catch by Nina. Barristan r- riding Danny's silver reminds her a little of Alisande's silver wing. The names and what coloring. What transition of- is these? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And uh, both were the excessive, uh, the exclusive mounts of Targaryen queens. Of course, until recently for Danny, who's now flown on Drogon, but still. Uh, and Alisande's uh, Silverwing didn't have a rider for a long time after uh, her death uh, until the Dance of the Dragon. So that would have been like 40-some years or more. And he w- and the rider was Ulf the White, um, who had white hair, which is what Barristan has. Uh, and of course, Ulf and Barristan are not, not at all alike, but they do have this, this sort of color theme going on here. And uh, also, the counterpart, Nina notes, to Danny's silver is Drogo's red. And uh, kind of who's coppery chestnutty, really. The red is kind of a nickname. It's really more coppery. And that's kind of similar to Vermithor, who's bronze. And Vermithor uh, was uh, Silverwing's sort of counterpart because that was Jerry's J- dragon. So that's pretty cool. Maybe a little, uh, little history making its way in there, a little history repeating itself. I think that's probably intentional on George's part. What do you think that could tell us about what could happen? Ooh, um, well, if we take it, to the fates of those characters. I mean, if we think of Alisand, if Alisand is supposed to represent Daenerys, then Daenerys will die with her work undone, which does seem like it might kind of happen. Unless you think her work is to stop the Long Night, which that that work will be done, I think. Or maybe just her dragon will survive mm-hmm. after her and be around and be a part of the like the aftermath mm-hmm. or part of the coda of the story, which is sort of what happened on the show. Like, Beler- um, Drogon was still around, so... That could be sort of the thing, or it could be bad news for Barristan. It could for, uh, presage his death, 
Meaning if he's mm-hmm. playing the role of Alisan here, Silverwing survives the battle and Alisan does, well, Alisan didn't die in battle, but anyway, Silverwing outlasted Alisan by a long time. So that could be, if the horse outlasts Barristan, we could be seeing a similar sort of thing, but I'm not sure. That's, uh, it, it, these aren't one-to-one connections. Oh, and that's a great point. Off the White switched sides. And there's this mm. theory there that Barrison might switch sides. Jay coming in with a zinger. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, Off the White was a traitor. Now, Barristan is arguably already a traitor, but whatever. That's, that's The point is he could switch again. That theory has been out there. I know some of our contributors and commenters think there's no way that's happening because Barristan's just going to die before any of that could. But if not, this is a totally valid possibility and... Uh, yeah, that's where it could go if it doesn't end sooner than that for him. Well said. Well said. All right. Let's talk about the plan. Then. This is, I'm less interested in the actual battle plan, more about the gathering and what this says about the Long Night and, and this parallel work we're trying to do with thinking about how this priest does groundwork for much bigger things, which is kind of hard to imagine. We're talking about how this battle is so monstrous and huge, but really, it is a setup for bigger things, isn't it? I mean, the long night battles, battles versus the dead, they're going to be bigger, probably. They're certainly more expansive, certainly larger scale in terms of, uh, it's not just going to be in Marine, right? There's going to be, it's going to be lots of places in Westeros, probably. Maybe it'll, there'll be some epic final thing at Winterfell, who knows? But anyway, let's talk about the unity. Let's talk about this, this coalition. I think that's really interesting. Uh, yes, and here in general, what they're going to do is ride out attack the trebuchets, kill as many nobles as possible, free as many slaves as possible. We've been over that. There's not a whole lot more to say. Um, but, but we do have one thing I want to jump in before we get to these parallels. Dario. Dario may get freed during all this. Dario represents a part of Danny that is real, somewhat troubling, somewhat natural, right? Like she just needs to have companionship, right? That's part of her relationship with him. But she's also set him aside. Do you have any thoughts on Dario's future? Does he have a role in the rest of the story or, or no, or somewhere in between? I, he's, something, he's someone I find difficult to predict because there's no, no chance whatsoever the show's ending for him is what we're getting in the books. So uh, right. it's hard, very hard to predict. So it, it, <laughs> I understand if you don't have a strong prediction because like I said, I don't really either. So, <laughs> but if you just in case. Sure he goes, there's no chance of that's <laughs> happening. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I have a strong prediction, but I definitely don't think that he's going to go to Westeros with, Daenerys. I, I just think that he kind of represents this piece of her that needs to part of her as she goes on to Why? leave. Just because I think that so many people talk about him being her almost like Achilles heel. Like mm. somebody that she cares deeply about who's not necessarily going to um, help her situation in Westeros. And even in this chapter, we get Barristan kind of thinking about how if he died in this battle, it would kind of be helpful for everybody because... <sighs> then they wouldn't have to deal with the Dario situation going forward. And so, yeah, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion about what that looks like, whether he stays behind a Marine on purpose or he dies or he goes off and falls out somewhere else and mm-hmm. does his own thing. Mm-hmm. But I just don't think that he's going to be part of that group that heads over with Daenerys ultimately. I, I feel like, I think that Dario is bad for Daenerys for everyone else, but not necessarily bad for Daenerys for Daenerys. Mm. I think that especially after she comes back with Drogon, she's going to have a lot more and, and going through what she does mentally, she's going to have a lot more of a footing on who she is as a person. And if she chooses to have him around, I think it'll only be bad for people that are trying to bullshit her. Mm. Like he tells her, he tells her very flatly what's going on. 
you know, he, he does offer some difficulty in how he chooses to disappear at times to sort of emotionally blackmail her to feel certain ways. But if she can put him in his place and uh, not allow that sort of flexibility for him to get margins on top of her that way, the only bad, the only bad thing that he really represents in that case is her potential to marry other people for political gain, which we saw happening with his dar. And we've already seen her like shove him off to the side for that. So if she needs to do something like that again, then mm. he will be in the way for that. Yeah. But I just I, I think people getting in her ear and uh, influencing her in ways that is not like straight up or up front. I think that that's really the biggest threat because he basically tells her how it is when it comes to stuff, and that's dangerous for other people because they want to use her in different ways. And he's like, listen. You don't need to do that, or you, this is actually what they want, and it's kind of like I think the way Tyrion will treat her in some ways, but I think ultimately Tyrion still has his own his own agenda. Yeah, but you don't think Dario has his own agenda because we don't know for sure. I mean, I think that we want, we though? speculate a lot that like Dario is with her because he loves her, but he's also likely with her because he loves the trappings of power. Sure. And he loves the access that it gets him. We don't. Compl- I wouldn't say that he's purely motivated in his. I, I don't think that he's purely motivated at all, but I think that she's the biggest babe around. I think that that's his goal. <laughs> it is hard to separate the two. Like she is a big babe around, but she's also the mother sure. of dragons. <laughs> like, you can't separate the two. I guess yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. You can't, but she's a she's a mega babe, and he likes <laughs> mega babes. You know, so it's like you yeah. take her out of the equation. What's he going to do? He's constantly going to be trying to find someone as good as her. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's on to the next. Yeah, and that's maybe maybe that's fine for Dario, and maybe that's fine for Danny. But I, I think that the real threat that he posed in Dance was getting in the way of potential political uh, alliances, not necessarily like hurting the kingdom. I don't think that I, I don't know. Maybe I'll need to reread it, but I just don't see her, especially after going through what she's going through, being too distracted by him hanging out in her bedroom to be effective in Westeros necessarily. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. That's the that's, a, that's a good take. I like that because I think most a lot of us do just kind of go, eh, Dario, he's not going to be part of the story going forward. But you you're right about the right, fact that like, he does why tell can't her. She put him in his place. Yeah, she does he does tell her things that she needs to hear that other people won't tell her. That's a good point. Like he's not and, and Hannah's right that it isn't necessarily for her benefit. He's not necessarily saying that just out of right. sympathy. She or, knows that though. She knows that about right. him. He wears the girls on his daggers. He's not exactly hiding it. It's like he know. it's like she knows Jorah. She knows what Jorah was after and she was able to still use him until other than finding out he had betrayed her in the past. But if it wasn't for the betrayal in the past that upset her so much, justifiably, she could continue just using him as a sword and being like, yeah, he's in love with me and I'll make use of that. I'm not, I don't love him and he knows I'm never going to love him. Well, maybe he doesn't know that, but he, he's been told that. <laughs> he, may, he may have in the back of his head that that can change, but he's Come wrong. On. But uh, anyway, so she has dealt with this before, like someone who's in, who wants her and doesn't right. necessarily have good, <laughs> good ambitions with that. Like uh, he, he may... She's not into that. So anyway, that, that's, that's well said. What it's, do you, it, you think? It is sort of underestimating her to say she can't handle it in a way. Or maybe, because she does seem to handle right. it all right. Like inside her if head, she she's can't not handle fooled. it, who can? She's not fooled, right? Like she's in her head. Yeah. She's like, right. Dario is, is war and woe. Like she's, she's got the hots for him, but that's, she, she's not listening to his like strategies. She's not like, he, he suggested red wedding, his dar's wedding, you know, to her. Right. And she's like, no. She didn't even consider it for a second. You know, <laughs> she's like, no, that's monstrous. Like no way I'm doing that. But don't you also see like him as part of Daenerys's learning process of becoming? I kind of think yeah. of like that: kill the boy and become the man 
situation. And yeah, her relationship with him is kind of killing the boy. Yeah, she's the girl in this case. Yeah. And he represents this like feminine and womanly side of her that we don't get to see often in her ruling because she can't, we don't explore that a lot. And so I feel like she has to kill the parts of her that are real. Why? I don't know. I think that's what George R. R. Martin, I think that he kind of makes that argument oftentimes Mm, in the series that you kind of have to get rid of the things, your like personal things for the greater good or whatever. It's that uh, Barry chapter that we just did. Okay, Kingbreaker thinks a lot about stuff. He's sort of uh, hitting the ideas and he's providing multiple examples of how um, effective leadership or control are kind of uh, ultimately tarnished by love becoming a part of the scenario. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, then he follows, follows that up with, I think, kind of being a huge hypocrite because that's part of the reason why he is who he is as a person. It's his love for... I forget what I wrote in my notes. It was a lot more eloquent than what I'm about to say, but it was uh, basically with the the way that he is, how he is, how he believes chivalry is the answer to all the solutions and the problems that he's getting himself into is basically the same idea of uh, love in general, of like uh, of mm. this sort of magic coming in the way of logic. And he's like ultimately still depending on this level of magic that 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 can give a potential. Um, like a variable that might lead to failure. And he's citing all these examples where our love has become this potential variable, especially with the Targaryens and pretty much every other situation in the story leading to some kind of failure. And I think that what you're saying and what you're saying is he's as well as that her killing the boy essentially is taking out, killing her womanly side or her feminine side or where she's being distracted by things like this. Um, is going to create a more effective person that's a leader of all these people. And maybe you need to be a, a pro- computer program to lead all of these people. You need to be totally perfect and, and not shy away. It was uh, Ashara, I, I think, is what it was with Barry. But ultimately, mm-hmm. Barry had the hots for Ashara in a very deep way. And uh, I would argue that maybe not pursuing that in some way might have led to more trouble then what ended up happening to her in the first place. We, we don't really know. Yeah, it is hard to I say. don't know what the answer is. I think that that's part of what A Song of Ice and Fire is going to ultimately be. But I would, I, just from intuition, not knowing what George is, he's older than me, smarter than me, pays a lot more attention than I do to stuff for sure. So maybe he thinks he has the answer. Maybe he's going to get to it eventually at the end of the story. But just knowing what I know about Danny, based on just the kind of person she's been in all of these books so far, I would put her at, I'd say she's as good as equipped as anyone. Maybe Blood Raven is pretty good at it too. I don't know, but like mm-hmm. I think that she's she's in a great position to master herself and still get what she wants, yeah, and not mess stuff up. Right is all I'm saying. Right on. Okay, well let's let's move on to the this big topic here, uh, important topic: how this coalition, this army that's gathered in Daenerys's name, that is mostly there because she uh, organized it ahead of time. She a lot of these are slaves that she freed. A lot of them are people following her because she's so impressive because she's a mega babe. <laughs> no, because she's the mother of dragons. And this, there's a, here's a quote that we've seen this style quote many times. And it pretty much always seems to say the same thing. Uh, quote, now once again, the market was a scene of carnage. Though these dead came riding the pale mare. By day, Marine's brick streets showed half a hundred hues, but, but night turned them into patchworks of black and white and gray. We've seen this, this uh, like I said, we've seen this kind of sort of expression before from George. When he talks about the bright banners and all the individuality, the houses, the identities, and all those identities fade when night comes. 
becomes black and white and gray. And that's when the distinction between humanity uh, and individual personality starts to fade when we're faced with the long night and it becomes survival. And we don't have as much, there's, there's not as much individualism. There's not as much unique identities. It's all about just hum, the human race and surviving. A couple other parallels here. The others versus the slavers, right? This is an inversion. The others are obviously bad guys and full stop. Slavers, same. <laughs> uh, we talked about how when the slaver, you free a slave, you maybe have added a new soldier to your side because they absolutely will want to kill you know, quite possibly. Maybe they just want to run away, but they, a lot of them will want to go back at the ones who enslaved them in the first place. Not hard to see why. Similarly, from the others, this is an inversion because it's the, uh, the good, the bad guys get it this time. The others, when they kill a living being, they create a new soldier by raising them and making them into a white. So we have this sort of parallel inversion of uh, the power of adding to their army comes through something innate to them, whether it's uh, you're fighting against evil or whether you've been subsumed by that evil. And it's a very different look than A Song of Ice and Fire's core in a lot of ways because we're, we're constantly given gray situations where it's not necessarily clear who the good guys are. There's not necessarily good guys. It's not really the same here. This is a, like in the Blackwater. You have people rooting for Stannis. You got people rooting for Tyrion. You got people rooting, maybe not rooting for Tywin, but maybe rooting for certain things to not happen around Tywin right. and certain people adjacent to him. Similarly here, or not similarly here, no one at all that I know of is rooting for <laughs> young guy here. <laughs> so it's completely the opposite. Likewise, no one's going to root for the others. So I think that's why this Anyone is... Anyone in the fandom that roots yeah, for never, young guy I'm at all? Sure. Know that? I've never heard of there's such gotta a thing. There's got to be one. There's, Listen, one, there's yeah. people at the Great Tourney and Ice and Fire Con that wear Frey <laughs> costume. And you know, there's got to be someone <laughs> repping young guy. There's um, got to be. We're starting it right now. People are like, oh yeah, it could be the first God, band. What an idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's so funny. So I want to draw your attention to all that is do you guys have any comments on these like big overarching like large-scale parallels to the slavers and the others and, and humanity and fighting against what we the very few things in the world that we can definitively say are wrong there's always opinions on almost anything you can say there's a different attitude right. might mean this is not such a bad thing but some things i think we can say definitely wrong <laughs> and i think that's where we're at with this what do you guys think I think that the fight and the others might be an easier sell for just like the world as a whole because I think that while there really isn't much nuance between what's happening in Marine and kind of as you're explaining who's on the quote-unquote good side or the bad side, I feel like there's more power to be gained from the Yunkai and kind of what they're looking to do and what they're looking to accomplish. There's like a lot of money and power and things there that I think people are holding on to over morality. But when you look at the others, there really isn't going on to their side. Like that's a very much a fight for your planet as you know it. And so I think that there's going to be even less of a question once everybody's actually on board. I think there's even less of a question of kind of where do I stand or who should I fight for? Or what position do I want to be part of? Because the gravity of that situation is even more black and white. Either you help and we might be able to push these guys out or you don't and we all get turned into dead things. So there's no compromise like another them stepping either. stone. Yeah. Right. It's another stepping stone kind of towards that grander battle. But one other thing I was kind of thinking about is I think that 
the people of Westeros and as we look at this fight against the others are a little bit more united just in general. While, he, while here in Marine, we really have every different possible background. And we haven't quite gotten to the point of Westeros where there's as much of a melting pot, I think, of backgrounds. But here we've got all of the religions and all of a lot of the different cities and areas and countries and whatever you would call them represented in so many different ways. More and coming. Yeah, even, with more on the way. Even Westeros, right? You've even got Ironborn and, and Westermen and yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. swords. Yeah, it's incredible. Side of the coast of Westeros. Yeah. So it's even more of kind of this melting pot of interest converging here. Whereas I think that when we're fighting in Westeros against um, the undead, I mean, obviously we're going to need everybody to participate in order to have any sort of chance against them. But mm-hmm. I feel like it's even a larger hurdle here in Marine to get people on your side just because there's so many different backgrounds and perspectives and morality comes into play a little bit. Before you answer, Zach, um, let me let me add another little tweak to the discussion here and throw out the, the part, the, the aspect that what might happen in Westeros, something we, we saw from the TV show, which I think is a good chance of being on a large scale accurate. Not the details necessary, but the and the idea is that while some of Westeros is struggling to stop the others. There will still be factions just going about their business as if there are there is mm-hmm. no such problem. They're still going to be fighting over the throne. Uh, what we saw with Cersei in the show. That could be, we, we might get that in the books where it may, it may not be Cersei, um, although she's a strong candidate. We may, But we may still see squabbling over the Iron Throne, even as the others have broken through the wall and all that. Right, and that right. could be where we have this sort of parallel between well, are we really all united? Or you know, like the ones who are, yeah. all the, yeah. the ones who do go north are going to be all in and fighting for humanity, but there's still going to be some who are just like, nah, I'm not going to help. I got my own yeah, things to do. That's <laughs> going to piss us off more than anything yeah. to see that happen, which is yeah. why I think it's going to happen probably in some way. And this is something that really, maybe I'm getting a little too real with this, but when we have like a whole global situation that we all are dealing with, it's kind of like, it does kind of suck to see people like, going the opposite way, <laughs> you know, doing not helping or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, even, even when helping is, it doesn't taking require advantage much. of the moment. Yeah, exactly. So for very small gains that don't actually uh, relate to the greater goal of everyone, yeah. which makes sense because in opportunity or in moments of opportunity, that's a good time to get those small gains. But I would argue that when the others are coming, you know, I mean, think of what's going on inside of Marine right now that we don't know about. Yeah, at the, at, the, at this that, yeah. exactly. Not only Skahas, but just locally on the ground of uh, not not just harpy related activities, just kind of thieving and taking of other people's resources when you haven't earned them. That's probably going general, on. Yeah, lack of sentiment in general. Authority. Yeah, mm-hmm. uncertainty. Yeah, what how, what happened in King's Landing uh, mm-hmm. when the the what happened to the the High Septon? You know, oh the, yeah, those opportunities to lash oh, yeah. out or lashing out. Uh, I think uh, manifests in a lot of different ways. I I, I think that. What you were just talking, what you what you were both just talking about, is going to be part of the uh, overhead analysis that happens way down the line. Whenever we're looking at the greater themes of the books, whenever they're published, and uh, we're going to see like the artist um, and how he expressed his theme in an even more uh, abstract way than being upfront about burning someone with fire or freezing someone with ice. Of uh, what's happening here, being the like you were saying, the lifelike elements. Uh, this is dealing with someone's freedom from other people and ability to live their lives freely from other people is the representative of the, the of the life and the potential of what could, you could do with your life being the fire elements. And then the survival that we're going to deal with, with the White Walkers, uh, with the others being, you know, the 
the cold, dead ice element that's a lot more serious, that has less abstraction, less potential, more just to do with not being taken over and being controlled like a puppet, like a zombie. Yeah. Well, there's, and there's this... It's cool. Let me touch on this Azora High aspect of this all too, because something that Shay and I have been beating the drum about for a long time, we're not the only ones, but certainly it's something that we've really tried to highlight, is how the legend of Azora High is more about a, a, a figure who is a uniter, a coalition builder, rather than a warrior, right? Like there is some warrior talk in there, but mostly it's about bringing together cultures, bringing together all these different peoples that don't have much in common to some, for some common goal. And we're also very open to the idea of Azor Ahai being multiple figures. Even though Danny checks off the boxes better than John, this box, they check off pretty well equally. Uh, John is doing a whole lot of uniting too, right? He's bringing together mm -hmm. free folk of disparate types. Let's not forget the free folk themselves are not one monolithic organization. Nance Raider had a hell of a time bringing them together. And only through strength and charisma and intelligence was he able to do that. And, and time, we see the same thing happening there. John's coalition is falling apart because chaos and inexperience and, and people not getting it. And we're seeing some of that here. Now, the broad, this is a, a more disparate group of people brought together in the Slaver's Bay. But it's, uh, it's still a similar concept of, of people who don't really get along, that need to get along, or they're all going to die. <laughs> that's kind right. of the basics there. Uh, do you have anything to add to that? No, that's a good summation of kind of what we've been saying. Yeah, right on. So let's move on to a, a, a related topic that's very similar. We talk about... Can I ask really quick? Oh, yeah, sure. What do you think the significance is of us getting the fire before the ice? Hmm... Maybe because that's the, the tool that, like, the, the fire is more associated with the, what we need to fight the ice, I think. Like, we're not, Boom. you know what I mean? Like, the ice is the yes. enemy. The fire is, is, is destructive and it can harm us. It's but, life. But we it's are able life. to, yeah, it is life. Fire is life. There, fire is destructive, but you need it to live. Ice, you don't hmm. really need ice to live? Well, if you it, enjoy it can beverages be as much as I do, it okay. might seem crucial. <laughs> That's a good point. I do like cold <laughs> beverages. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, let's, let's talk about some exceptions to Barristan's speech and how this builds into this, this uniting of themes. Like, everyone feels fear, he says. But if you were to glance over at the Unsullied, you might, it wouldn't be the same exact case, would it? They, don't, they feel fear, maybe. It's not clear. They have this wine of courage. They're really, it's really kind of uh, I don't want to say tortured out of them, but it's pretty close to tortured out of them. But uh, we, So we don't actually know what they're feeling, but they certainly act like they're not afraid. And uh, you get the sense that it's not like an act. It's not like Barrison isn't acting uh, uh, unafraid. He really is unafraid, but he is feeling stuff. He's dealing with it. Whereas the Unsullied, you get the sense that they've just had a lot of emotion drilled out of them. Fear and love. And, but, but clearly some of it's still there because we see them have relationships and they still act they still are human. They've just had a lot of that human take, humanity taken away from them. Building on that, the Unsullied show great courage in facing the flying dead, but what about the walking dead? <laughs> like, they just move out of the way when a body flies. They just break ranks, the body lands, and they just, you know, reform their position like nothing happened. Talk about an enemy that feels no fear at all. The Unsullied may be the best example of humans that can master it because of these artificial means. But what about when we face actual dead that don't feel any fear, that don't feel pain, that's something else the Unsullied feel less of is, is fear, and is pain rather. And so that kind of makes them sort of a bridge between the undead and the living. More living than, than not, obviously. But 
that's a really neat kind of concept that fear and pain are, you take those away and we don't, they're not good things. We don't like fear. We don't like pain. But if you take them away, we're not human, are we? Yeah, it's like we were saying before with bravery, the concept of acting uh, within a moment that you don't really know what to do. I, I don't think that it's possible for you to do that without fear. So it's almost like a chicken and the egg. It's like they have to be present for you to exist in this world in some way to do something that you haven't done before. Hmm. Yeah. And if you don't understand fear, you won't be able to, if you don't feel fear, you can't really sympathize or understand how it works in other people, which is most people. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'm very curious to see how the Unsullied will, will face the undead. I think they're set, set to be frontline warriors very much like they were in the show, but I think we'll get more nuance to it. Do you have any other, do y'all have any other predictions or ideas for, for how the Unsullied will and this aspect of, of fearlessness or, or faux fearlessness? Well, I think that one thing that is going to make me freak out when we're in that battle is if the Unsullied start to lose their cool and they yeah. start to crack at all. Ooh, I think that that's going to wow. be a moment where we have to say, okay, this is going to be right. absolutely insane. And so maybe that's something to watch for. If they can keep a, a level head, is it even keeping a level head just because it's so ingrained in them? I'm not sure. But if they can, the way we see in this chapter when they're just stepping aside <laughs> a little bit for a moment when the <laughs> bodies are being flung, um, then I think we've got a good chance. But if they start to fall apart, I don't know about the rest of us. Right. That's a great that makes idea. us feel good side and then immediately fill ranks back again. Is that what your is that what your main concern is when you're thinking about how they might react as if they like Hannah said, if they react in a way that shows that they are also shaken. If someone has has gone through as much conditioning as them could be shaken by the undead. And it's like, oh, they must be a lot worse than I could have imagined. This, that's great, yeah, because this is this is really touches back to what we said at the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of this discussion, is we said Barristan's confidence is infectious. He's showing everyone else, like, look, I've been through this before. I am afraid, but I'm handling it right. It's it's totally what makes it work. He's selling that to his men. He's sharing his confidence that way. But yeah, and the unsullied are like the two. If the unsullied can't handle it, oh man, yeah, that's right. terrible. If they break, then what the what's Theon gonna do? wow yeah that's a great take there if if the unsullied break oh man yeah who can (laughs) who can stand if they can't wow i don't know they'd have to have some really bold heroic uh like ideas for their future like i don't know i can see john being headstrong enough to try to break through a bunch of eyes but he's one person and he might be and he could be considered partly dead. So maybe that's a part of what gives him that. <laughs> you know, he's right. like, hey, I'm that already might, dead. I can handle this. <laughs> it's like Vic in this sense, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's uh, here's the thematic uh, connections from where the armies are standing that I mentioned earlier. This is Nina's work here. Really good job here. Uh, she mentions that the Unsullied are, are positioned quote, beneath the towering brick facade of Marine's ancient slave exchange, which is a slave market. Right. And that's exactly where she bought them in the first place. Although, of course, it was Astapor, not Marine, but that is where they originated. So when the corpses come down, the unsullied show their unemotional, disciplined response. They just step away, then move back. And uh, it's, it's not inhumane, it's high discipline. But we just spoke to that anyway. Then the storm crows assemble beneath the merchant's arcade, fronting on the southern side of the square. The merchant's arcade sell swords purchase the swords, right? You <laughs> Merchant's Arcade. That fits super well. They're there. It's like you go to the 
the market and buy yourself some fighters. And that's where they're standing. <laughs> and this is where <laughs> Quentin, I need to point out, this is where Quentin and his men joined the Windblown in the equivalent spot at uh, Volantis near the Merchant's House. So Merchant's Arcade, Merchant's House, similar thing. And uh, that's where you would expect them to be standing. The, the Dothraki riders are, quote, milling about near the weathered bronze statue of the Chainmaker. Now, we don't know who the Chainmaker is. Some of you will ask, who's the Chainmaker? It's some sort of god or heroic figure, heroic in, in quote, air quotes, from the Giscari pantheon or legendarium. But this is certainly an association with slavery. We can be pretty 99% sure of that. And the Dothraki are some of the biggest enslavers in the world, right? They capture especially in this area, this part of the world. They go out, they capture people, they bring them to these markets and sell them. So it kind of makes sense that they're uh, thematically hanging out by the chain maker, the guy who sort of enables, in a lot of ways, their lifestyle. They go, they sell their slaves, they get money, they go back and do that again. Now, you all mentioned um, Skahas uh, as someone to be wary of. We are on that same uh, level of wariness, We've compared him mm -hmm. to Littlefinger in a few ways. He doesn't have, uh, his ambitions aren't as um, dark or as uh, selfish as Littlefinger's, but they're, his, his, his ability to manipulate people and to uh, blame other people for his things that he probably did is on par in terms of his skill level. And Nina points out he's not there. This is an, as, a, as a footnote to where all these people are, he's not. What do you all think about Skahas, his lack of being here and any sort of maybe predictions or worries you have about what he might do or not do. He's just, to me, he's been so eager this whole time with mm -hmm. Barry. And uh, we also compared, uh, I think, both him and Resnick as a sort of a Varys and Littlefinger dynamic, dynamic, dynamic equivalent there uh, in Marine. And I think that I've, I don't see why he would care so much about Barry's opinion. But although there has been times along the process with Barry where it seems like he's listened to him and he heavily disagreed with him and I can't decode whether or not he's continuing to listen because he's submitting in some way or if he's biding his time. I really it's hard for me to tell. And he hasn't really revealed whether or not how much he believes in Danny's course like how deeply it resonates with them but uh, up until this point someone like Barristan believes for the most part that it's because he's so against from the beginning the idea of slavery within marine and so they're just stalwartly against it and maybe he's thinking about it and it's not coming on the page or maybe he's thought about it in other situations that when he before he had his pov that he also had you know something that was in it for him in some way at least he's at the, he's at the top of that pile in some way um, and he's able to derive some power. They're able to derive some margins of influence within Marine by there just being a new rule. And that new rule being that there isn't necessarily slavery allowed. So if he's going against the the old way in a way that Resnick and the Lorax and people like them have cascaded on top of power comfortably for the longest time, like I think that he's probably got some sort of a of a um of a chip on his shoulder about those people because they've basically held him down and his family, his family down, I think, for a long time within Marine, the Kandax versus the Resnex, the Lorax or whatever. And like this is a good opportunity for him to seize power in some way. So if he's seizing power... Chaos is a ladder. Chaos is a ladder. Yes. If, he's, if, if he's got power enough right now with Barristan, then maybe he won't try anything. But I think a lot of it has to do with how well they're doing outside of the battle. And how well things fall apart or 
fall apart or not, like how handily the victory is on their side. I think that he might still use the brazen beasts to control the inside of Marine. To what end? I'm not sure. Like hopefully he holds it strong enough for them just to want to leave. And I think he knows enough about their potential conquest toward the West that he might just do that. Or if he'll use it as a way to sort of set him up as the person that they leave in charge. Mm. Because he has control of the city watch, essentially, like the equivalent of that. Um, I think that that's also a pretty good option. But I think a lot of it just comes down to how well they win in the end. And I don't really think that there's a way that he's a saint, a saint-like figure that Mm. isn't, that doesn't have grander machinations for this, unfortunately. Well said. Well, Hannah, what do you think? But also, before you answer, let me throw in a little detail that I think a few people may have missed. I want to make sure everyone's aware of it. Yes, I um, I agree there's a lot of danger if Scott has to be kind of left alone inside. Because something to keep in mind is not nearly the full Unsullied are deployed out. Now, there's mm-hmm. about 8,000 mm-hmm. Unsullied and only 5,000 of them are going out. So we, the other 3,000 aren't really mentioned. There's no way that many have died. Wow so far, uh, I don't think. Maybe even a thousand, I think, dying at this point would, would be a little surprising. We certainly haven't heard of that many dead Unsullied, so they, they're presumably still inside, and that would be a big issue for Skahas to have to deal with if he decides he wants to seize the city. Right. But that wouldn't stop him from, like, killing the hostages, for example. That's a, that's a popular theory right. that oh, yeah. we, should, we, could, we must consider. So, yeah, Hannah, what do you think? I mean, I don't have too much more to add to that other than what I was saying about chaos is a ladder. Like I just think <laughs> Gahaz is, is seizing opportunity where he sees opportunity to get his own. And that I don't necessarily think he has strong loyalty ties to Daenerys and Daenerys' cause. He's just kind of playing the game the best way that he knows how and is, mm-hmm. is manip- manipulating the situation in his favor the best way he understands how to manipulate the situation. And so mm-hmm. what he ends up doing specifically, I n- can't necessarily... Like, I don't have any specific thoughts on that, but right on. definitely agree that, like, that's something worth noting. Do you, he kind of do rev- you think that he'll, because he's just dislikes, or will he at all? Or, like, why would he? Is it because he wants to make more chaos, so there's more potential for growth, or is it because he really has a bone to pick with the other side? Well, I think so much he, he, he believes it's um, essentially like a fight to the death. There can only be one winning side here. And if the, the nobility is allowed to regain their position of power, He's dead. Mm-hmm. He he and his family mm-hmm. are dead, um, and he mm-hmm. knows that. So he's like, whatever. It, even so, if his allies do things that don't put him in a position to survive all this, he's going to turn on them right. because it's it means his death, which is somewhat understandable. Uh, maybe not the most noble thing, but at least it's 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 like you can you can predict based on that. He's not going to let himself die. If we could add to that, if we could do more comparing to Littlefinger and us, like Littlefinger is manipulating grain prices. We see that from Elaine's chapter in the Vale, which we'll cover in a few weeks. And that's exactly the kind of undermining of a, a human coalition that's necessary to stick together to fight this encroaching darkness. Exactly the kind of person that could undermine all that. Skahas kind of represents that as well. It's like they have this, this, this uneasy coalition in Meereen that's fighting the Yunkish. Um, and it could all collapse if the parts of that coalition cease to trust each other. And if one part of if that central piece of the coalition includes the Skahas guy that the, the other people can't trust. They're like, well, we're not going to ally with him. We, we like Danny, but not if she's with this guy, you know, and right. um, it all falls apart. And it's very fragile. And someone like, like you said, Littlefinger, Skahas, they're experts at taking advantage of that uncertainty 
Chaos is a ladder. Yeah. <laughs> it's a as real cliche as that is. It fits <laughs> <true>. awfully well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Hannah, sticking with you. Uh, Joe Buckley is excited to see the Unsullied in action. Nina is very confident in her prediction that Barristan won't survive Marine. And I'm personally just really perversely curious about what Victorian's firearm is going to do <laughs> in action and what it means. <laughs> what about y'all? What is, Hannah, starting with you, what are you most looking forward to from the rest of this battle and or aftermath? It's like, what's something you're really curious about that like it's near the top of your list or top of your list other than the horn? Because I'm also going to ask y'all what happens with right, the horn. Right, right. So Take that uh, off the table. Yeah, let's come, we'll do that uh, next. My answer is, necessarily good a good one i'm excited for it to be over not because like i don't want to see what happens and not because i don't i'm not interested in all those things you listed off because i think that this is going to be pretty epic but i'm also i'm just really excited to move past this hump that we've been swirling in for so long (laughs) and and i mean it's called that for a reason and i'm excited to kind of see the fallout of that and kind of what happens next and the trajectory that there's a storyline it's going to take where they go next, who's with her, and how long it takes until we get to Westeros in Winds of Winter, whether we make that journey in that book or we have to wait for a Dream of Spring to kind of reach back home. Mm. So that's like kind of a lame answer, but I'm excited for to see the aftermath of, of the chaos of the battle and kind of what that means for these characters that we really care about. I don't think that's lame. I think it's pretty valid. You know, after all, um, like Miranese <laughs> yeah. not like we'd rather have a Miranese weave or, you know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> that would be a worse Twitter handle for Ash. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just unintentionally insulted Ashea. My bad. <laughs> what about you, Zach? What are you looking forward to either in the battle or just after or anything like that? Something like it could be the small I'm detail, it could be a big one. Looking forward to Barristan and Vic fighting back to back. And he's like, You're Barristan. And he's like, like You're Victorian. What's up with your hand? Uh, What's up with your I want, face? <laughs> yeah, why is your face so old? You're the only person older than you in this story is Brendan Rivers. And he's like, You mean Blood Raven? And they're like, Wow, we bond over history. Uh, I think my brother had a dream about him once. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. That uh, pretty good. I just uh, Zach is yeah. She said, Zach, she said you're really going to be the one to finish the series to be the one to write the rest of it. <laughs> Fine, let's do it. Let's do it. I'm going to need some help. <laughs> I'll just put down bullet points. Uh, <laughs> so okay, so then the next one. What about the horn? We'll stay with you, okay. Zach. Do you have any predictions or okay. hopes for the hell horn? Hope I hope that suck. it's real. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I hope it doesn't suck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I would like to see Vic blow it and it work. But I'm not sure. Like, I want to know if what Makoro did to him makes him more, makes it possible for him to use it. Because I feel like there had to be a use for it to be made. Yeah. And I think understanding the horns is a, is a key to understanding some next parts of the story. Because clearly there's some kind of like ancient knowledge that no one that we've really talked to intimately, like understands intimately. Yeah. Maybe if we had a Blood Raven point of view, we would know. I wonder if it's uh, the, someone, the no man part, like a woman could maybe blow it or something like that. That's no, that might be something too. I mean, either way, either yeah. way, the, there's, I think understanding how the horns work, clearly they were constructed in multiple parts of the world. Maybe, yeah. I don't know if that's clear, but like they're definitely in different parts of the world now. And it seems like there's importance for them that spans multiple instances. Maybe again, um, we don't really know. 
Um, I, I can't say for sure. I mean, I know what the glyphs supposedly said. Yeah, said that. I don't know. I don't know what they actually do. Right. So he lied. Them, yeah. <laughs> he could have lied, but even <laughs> yeah. then, it could it could be some kind of a storied imagery. It mm-hmm. might not have a sp- like. It might not literally tame a dragon. It might just right. be a horn like in a frequency that they really like or something. I don't know specifically. Yeah, it's so weird. I really right? want to understand it. But if if what if it's coming from Valyria, let's say this one does because of the writing. If it's coming from Valyria, maybe whatever the, these red priests, which are an artifact of that time, are able to do, um, maybe what he touched Vic with will give him the ability to do it. Mm. And um, as yeah, far as the, the theories, go on. You know, I was gonna say he's got yeah, he's got those thralls to do it, but you're right. He's like he's tempted to do it himself. He might just like nah, I'm gonna right. do it, yeah. you know, because it's, it's it's weird yeah. that he's got that temptation. Even though we saw what happened, like why are you right. tempted? It's something weird he's about that. he's a weird dude. I think it might come down to the moment of like everything to bring himself to do it. I think he might it might have to be like that, that savagery we were talking about before. His self confidence and like the momentum of his own success might lead him in a moment of like panic almost mm. instead of panicking he might be like all right then and do it and it might work for him in some way but either way i want to know thanks yeah. for holding this laptop still because we'll <laughs> i'm banging the table yeah hannah what do you think i really want to know how it works <laughs> there's a lot of questions about how it works and if it works and whether it's tied to euron or it's tied to victorian or if the horn is blown what does that actually mean for the dragons do they just leave or do they just like whatever yeah like do they go immediately to Euron if it's tied to him or do they just really like the sound of it I'm not sure but I think that something (laughs) right exactly like lulls them to sleep or something I think that for certain whether this works in any way that we understand mechanically I think that it's definitely going to create chaos throughout this battle I think that I was thinking about Barrison talking about the battle plan and how the different horns will sound for different mm. motions of, of what's going to happen next and to listen for yeah. the signal of, of what to do. I think about all of those horns blowing and then the hell horn blowing and we've got lots of different noise and chaos. And so I feel like it's setting up for a lot of confusion, whether it works in this mystical and magical way that we think it does or it doesn't, it's going to have some impact on the battle. Mm. Nice. But that I think. confusion that could ruin the plan at the wrong. Everything could be going fine, and then someone blows the dragon horn, and then they ruin like their momentum is shifted, and they're actually retreating when they shouldn't be, and now the forces are coming on them. I mean, it's not good. Yeah, it has that effect. Like if we think back to what happened at the King's Mood, like people were like overwhelmed. Like like Aaron yeah. himself, he felt like his head was going to explode. And like, what's that going to do if you're in the middle of a battle? Like you're literally fighting right. someone. You're lifting that sword, like Barrington said. Just keep lifting oh, that man. sword, keep moving. And all of a sudden, like, what the Whoa. hell is that? The sound that just comes out literally, what the hell horn is that? Um, right. <laughs> That's a new t-shirt. History of Westeros t-shirt. What the hell horn is that? <laughs> right. All right, here's some quick questions for y'all. You don't have to expand on your answer. You don't have to You can just give a yes or no answer if you want. But you, you can expand on it if you want. Uh, so these are these are little questions of fate things here. We've we've we kind of segued with the Hellhorn stuff. We don't know. This is a little more tangible, not necessarily easier to predict, but there's a lot fewer unknowns. Will Barristan survive to see Westeros? What do you no think? way. Yes. Okay. Oh. I'm glad y'all are divided <laughs> because that's good. It's it's a little bit of it's fun, more fun that nice way. Fire. Nice. <laughs> uh, okay. So simple enough. From Hannah's point of view, since she says no, Zach, you say yes. Will he turn his cloak to Aegon? I think that that could be part of his final. Okay, so if he d- let's if he go, do- let's go further into that. Okay, so if he does that, 
any idea like what his final fate is? You think maybe he survives the whole the whole thing, or is that a bit much? Probably not. Yeah, it seems right. I think it'd be I, more I sweet if he either. died at home, home over something that was less cut and dry. It would it would annoy me even more if it was a potential Fagon situation. Okay. And what if he was the one to see through the the veil and like really see oh. who this person is more than anyone else? I think that'd be cool. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I don't super know about t- like. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's <laughs> No, no. I, I was going to repeat something I've already said. I was just going to say I'm super torn on this one, and and folks have heard me go on about it for a while. So I definitely want to hear what you have to say, Hannah. Well, I just think about all of his chapters leading up to this moment are just filled with so much nostalgia and so much of his own personal history. And he's very reflective onto the decisions that he's made and the decisions that he hasn't made. Why are we... That might be because we haven't had Barristan POVs the whole way through. So now we're filling in some of the backstory. But I read it almost as his chance to kind of life mm-hmm. think through the things that he's done and the people that he's loved and the battles that he's won and the kings that yeah. he's served and all that kind of thing <laughs> as this grand farewell to this character that we care so much about i don't i think we'll get a lot more than we got in the show obviously that whole i mean that was pretty much the best to see him being taken down like the way that he was in the show but mm. i do think that just the way he thinks back on his life is all is direction of his soon-to-be death, in my opinion. Okay. So. Right on. That makes sense. Can't disagree. Uh, don't fully disagree, but I don't... I, I partly agree, for sure. Uh, mostly just we don't uncertainty. Know. Yeah, we just don't know. Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah. Think you make strong points, for sure. So, okay, simpler question. What Do y'all think Danny's silver will survive to be reunited with her? This battle is maybe... Uh, I would love it if... I, yeah. I would love it. They if, killed her yes, off in the show in the season case. two. Just, that was like... That's a, <laughs> What do you think, Zach? How did Silver die in the show? Just exposure. Just died in the red waste. Just, it's, you know, the red oh, waste yikes. sucks. Yeah, they're like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen on the way over to Westeros. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Silver died on his way home to his home planet. <laughs> Poochie the Silver. <laughs> I think probably not. I think Danny's main mount's going to be Drogon moving forward. Okay. Yeah, kind of transitioned, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Um, we've got a few questions from the live chatters and a few sent in advance. Let's take care of those. Uh, real quick, though, I wanted to draw your attention to a line from Tumko, who says uh, he talks about the Kraken banners when they spot the, yeah, the, they spot the Victorian ships, uh, which is, uh, he mentions Krakens because he's from the Basilisk Isles. And, uh, well, a lot of ships didn't make it a lot of Victorian ships that were sent through the Basilisk Isles are the ones that didn't show up. Also, we have this notion of Krakens maybe being summoned by Euron through blood or sorcery or blood magic, blood sorcery. And that might be kind of groundwork for this, that thing, that like foreshadowing a bit. Tumko talking about Krakens coming up to take ships might be set up for that. And that's pretty cool. Okay, let's see. We have questions here. Sir Roland Stark says, Sorry, late to the stream, but do you think that after the fight, if Barristan can win, will the Brazen Beast let them back into the city? So we brought this up, but mm-hmm. we didn't address it directly. I think I'm a little skeptical of that because of the other Unsullied still inside the city. I'm more of the more uh, on the side of Skahas can do stuff while Barristan's gone, but maybe not that. Uh, what do you all yeah. think? Mark? I would agree. I think that like we were saying, he's probably seizing this as an opportunity to make moves, but I don't think that his move is going to be to kick Barristan out just yet. I don't, I don't think that's his play. That makes yeah, him like, like what, yeah. You, 
what do you say? Like, uh, say sorry later. Ask, <laughs> yeah. Ask forgiveness, ask for, permission, ask for forgiveness not permission. Yeah. That's, that I think makes that's, sense. that's a good idea. Because otherwise, he's just basically saying now we're enemies, which is maybe that's going a little too far. Like, that's, if he's that worried about survival, it doesn't really sound like the thing you do to survive. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now, now they're both that's as, and now the young guy and Barristan are both as enemies. Like, uh, right. Uh, <laughs> so, and of course, that also works better if they let him back in the city. If the idea is that, that Scott has will maybe murder Barristan. Um, sure. Then yeah. that doesn't work keeping him outside of the city either. Right. When it's a little bit more advantageous for him to to do that. I don't think now is the time for that. Cool. Okay. So we, we seem pretty agreed on that. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Maura Lee sends a super chat. Says, happy Sunday to all. Just a show of love and appreciation for all the fabulous content. Well, thank you very much, Maura Lee. Happy Easter to everyone. It is a uh, plan to stream on Easter, but it's Sunday and it's <laughs> Easter Sunday. Hey, so it's bound to line up, right? Here we are. <laughs> Super chat from Fattest Leech says, keep on keeping on. Hey, Fattest Leech. Leech. How's it going, friend? Leech is on our episode tomorrow. Really? Awesome. Well, Preview. she and I were just chatting about the fantastic Kirsten Dunst movie, Drop Dead Gorgeous. <laughs> Such a good <laughs> what? one. Have you not heard of that one? It's a mockumentary no. about beauty pageants oh. in like rural areas. It's so funny. Nice. It's super funny. Oh, yeah. and my childhood. Was, Kirsten Dunst was like a teenager when it was made, so that's how old it was. Um, but there's a lot of like actors in that movie that were not yet quite famous, who are famous now, like a lot of them. So it's a real treat to go back and see nice. all these like almost famous actors, and now they're like doing much bigger things, including Kirsten Dunst. But there's like Denise Richards. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting off track here talking about Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's a really good movie, highly recommended. Nice. Yeah, our new Drop Dead Gorgeous podcast starting soon. <laughs> Drop Dead podcast. Yeah, Kirsten Dunst podcast. Uh. Here's a take from Guilty Undertaker. Regarding Unsullied and Fear, the gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another of Old Nan's stories, the tale of Night's King. He had been the 13th man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. You know who else makes a quote like that? Of all people, Ram, Roose Bolton says, Ramsey doesn't feel fear and that's a, a problem. Like when Roos is saying your personality is is problematic. Yeah. <laughs> that's when you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is really good. Anything to add to that? That's a really good guilty undertake there from Guilty Undertaker. Oh, it's a great quote, Paul. Nice. Yeah. I agree. Koi Vanazi says, I think these boys are all here to be Danny's court knights. George realized he needs more names around her when she arrives. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's mm -hmm. a good point. Yeah, there's some setup is needed there, maybe. Grizzly Meadows says, Grizzly. <laughs> this is a good take. Grizzly Meadows says, regarding, Alisan, uh, regarding Nina's comparison to Alisan, Alisan stopped the first night, the, the practice of first night, and Daenerys could stop the long night. Oh, Nice, right on. Nice take. Yeah. That is. Both equally shitty things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One's a lot more human in origin, but yeah. <laughs> Very good point, Grizzly Meadows. I like that take. Matthew Dominique says, imagine the silver survives a battle, but Drogon eats the silver. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I didn't think of that, that would one. be dark. We have seen a lot of flaming horse imagery, right? We saw the both yeah. Danny... There's that horse that that is getting more burned by running away from Drogon as they're, she's on his back. And then there's that moment in Tyrion's chapter when Rhaegal or Viserion ignite a corpse and one of them lands on some 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 horsemen and that starts running and that's it's like the same thing. We interpreted that. Yeah, we interpreted that as like Danny like leading the the Dothraki, like they're they're charging her her fire behind them and all that. 
but you know, I'm open to other interpretations. This is that's pretty dark, but I can't argue with it. Like, what do y'all think? <laughs> I think it'd be a I mean, we're talking about the things that she needs to shed as she becomes this new person and this new leader. And we were saying earlier that does the does her silver need to even survive if she's gonna be riding dragons all the time? And so it's like a almost a metaphor for her next step along the way in wow. her power. Yeah, it's like one, it's like Melee Samantha let- eating its twin in the womb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Just let Silver go like build a pony. You don't need to eat Silver. <laughs> uh, another t- take from Guilty Undertaker says, I hope Victorian survives just so him and Jamie can compare hands. Seriously. Yeah. I'm with that. <laughs> Ego Border says, interesting that Selmy's speech is not unlike the Broken Man monologue delving into the horrors of war. But Selmy's oh, is yeah. actually meant to be inspiring, whereas, or at least comforting. Whereas, yeah, the broken man speech is like war is awful. Uh, full stop. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's just all about perspective. It's about these these in the moment, things have different meaning based on what dangers we're facing. It's very human. Uh, Max L says, "Why do people think Barristan dies soon? Because he goes early in the show. For some reason, I thought he'd be around for a little while, but who knows? Well, the show isn't the only reason. It's certainly a suggestion. It's certainly possible." And I'd also say like it's kind of a changing of the guard, so to say, because mm. Barristan's been around for so long and he's kind of the old guard when it comes to A Song of Ice and Fire. And we've got the bones all the time. We've got like the kids are in charge now. Like the people who were kids at the beginning of this series are now coming into power and coming into their own in this this new era and this new wave. And Barristan is very much part of his great qualities. He's part of the old old way that things were done. And so doing away with him might also kind of help push things forward from just like a, I don't know how to better say it other than like the kids are in charge now. (laughs) (laughs) Another good question from Matthew Dominique. Do you think the battle of ice and the battle of fire are really at the same time? Uh, Meaning it's like lined up chronologically on Planetos where it's just George putting them in the same moment in the book for tension. That's tough to answer, but I think they're pretty close together. I think it would be a little odd if they were several months apart, and there's really nothing... There's nothing saying they are together, but there's also nothing really telling us that they're they're apart. So, eh, I definitely lean toward together. What do y'all think? Yeah, I think so, too. Um, It's hard to say by weather, because the end of dance is so centered on uh, being so far east. But I'd like to think that large news like that would find some way to travel to someone that we're talking to. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas Taliaferris says, do you think Barrison and Danny burn Volantis? Um, I don't know about Barrison, but I think Danny and Drogon, yeah, I think there's a very good chance of that and maybe freeing the slaves. Now, that yeah. is an interesting, considering Barrison in light of this is, is one of the things that might have Barrison thinking he's on the wrong side if Danny's mm-hmm. you know, burned the whole city. Uh, he might yeah. not be okay with that because after all, Ares was about to do that and that you know might touch on right. some things that are like, um, wait a minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hold on. Imagine that. <laughs> Feeding into his decision if he makes it all the way to Fagan, if she, yeah. he sees all of that, you know, and he doesn't want to happen in Westeros. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is a, a reason why some people think Barristan will live because there's so much potential for this type of conflict. On the other hand, maybe there's no time for all that. <laughs> so there's be a lot of points of view with Danny too. Maybe we'd lose his point of view mm, if anything. Yeah, that's true. They're all coming together like that. Uh, it's, it's interesting to show how how he's going to parse all that. Um, having two people in the same location, which one of them does he show the POV through? Like, he's got Theon and Asha together right now, and we've already got a Theon chapter where Asha's in the room with Theon, you know, and but it's his perspective. Right. And then, yeah. 
Dornish James says, the way he is with the Squires reminds me a bit of John trying to reassure Satin during the battle at Castle Black and Storm of Swords. Oh, yeah, <laughs> a really good take. Yeah, that's a good point. Satin was pretty brave, but he, he also hadn't faced this before. Good call, good call. Okay, I think that just about does it. I think we have handled all the questions. Do y'all have any any closing thoughts or anything you didn't get to say that you had planned on saying? Oh, let me look at my notes, see if I had anything smart <laughs> I wanted to say before we, we wrap this up. No. I don't know. I guess like my closing thoughts are just that this is very exciting and I can't wait to get to the other side because I think the momentum is... Can, for as long as we've been in these chapters and for as long as we've been reading this part of the story, the momentum still gets me amped up. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing how this all plays out. It's a good sign, yeah. <laughs> About you, I Yeah, I don't have any leftover thoughts, actually. I think that y- y'all made such a good doc. Uh, so thanks to Joe and Nina and to you for you and Ash for putting this together. Okay. It was so complete. It, you know, like It uh, really helped me increase my enjoyment levels of this chapter in general, just analyzing it with this level of each individual things. Like normally we wouldn't have spent more time talking about Barrison's new nightly appointments right in such a specific way, but you know, extending the conversation more um, is really helpful for me just to enjoy stuff. I love having conversations like this. This has been really, really fun for me just yeah. to sit here and to dig into it so much. And so I appreciate you guys putting all the work and in, into making this doc and for it's been really fun. Well, thanks, X, and thanks, Hannah. We really appreciate it. Yeah, the um, it, it was it, it has been really fun. This has been a great discussion, and it's has some things in common with discussions that we have on the regular, and some things that are kind of unique. I think you guys have a lot of takes that are of the sort that we sometimes don't get into on our show, and that's the value of having y'all on. Is that um, I know we share a lot of listeners, but. So many of y'all are more aware of these differences than we are even because yeah, you're right. You've listened to us more than we have. You know, we have a different approach to it. So, but from my perspective, I think that's really valuable when we have some uh, overlap on our ideas, but some differences and different approaches. There's just a lot we can do with that. And I think this, this episode yeah. proves that. Um, yeah, it's fun. So what do you guys have up next? I mean, we kind of have covered that sort of. We know that you guys are near the end of your Dance with Dragons action so that's presumably what you'll say but if there's anything else you have going on or want to shout out or, or mention about your show or what else you have going let us know we have uh, we have uh, one feast chapter left in the combined reading order okay. um, we're gonna get to Sam Samwell I forget the number uh, five I think. Um, yeah I think that's what it is um, so that mixed in with the end of the dance and then after that um, we plan on going into I don't know if we talked about it on our show yet but we should just talk about it now we plan on going into uh, World of Ice and Fire ooh nice that's gonna yeah. be fun because that's been a, like that's been sort of I don't know it kind of got set to the side a little bit by the fandom with Fire and Blood and yeah. the show and all these other things coming out but there's a lot of good stuff in there yeah. um, and to, to worth re-looking at given some of the revelations uh, that have come out afterwards so yeah, we plan on getting yeah, to the World of Ice and Fire and Valar Redis eventually as well, but we're not we're not terribly. Oh, cool! We're a ways away from that. <laughs> I'm so going to guys... start writing fanfic also about uh, <laughs> what are the towns here. Look at your map behind oh, yeah, you. Yeah, Bone Town. For, and... far, okay, I'm Bone Town fanfic is what I'm doing next. <laughs> yep, there's some good Kingdom stuff Man. there. <laughs> the map is so good. 
Okay. Um, the only other thing I'd say is that we mentioned earlier we got Leech coming on our episode next. Oh, yeah. Who's yeah. hanging in, in the chat. We'll have you guys on our podcast coming up shortly. So we have All a right. lot of fun guests coming as well as we near the end of our reading order. So cool. a lot of fun discussions to be had. Well, sticking on that topic, next week, our guest is Jim McGeehan, a.k.a. something like a lawyer. That's for Barristan 2. Uh, Jim has real military experience, so pretty perfect for uh, having an actual battle. Um, Now, that chapter is a summary, not a full read, but it's a very thorough summary. So that's nice. It's probably the most thorough of the ones that are just summaries. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to that. Um, so let's say thanks once again thanks to Game of Owns for coming today thanks to Joe and Nina for their invaluable uh, suggestions and takes that we were able to include in this episode Uh, there are more takes from them in this document we always have more takes from Nina and Joe that we don't have time for and and frankly some of my own takes we didn't have time for Um, and that's one reason to either check out Nina's uh, Tumblr, Good Queen Alley, and or Joe's show, The Isle of Faces, and or uh, check out our Patreon for access to the scripts and documents, which is one of the benefits we have amongst many others. So thanks as well to Ashea for running everything over there, off camera, thanks, managing Ash. so much. Thanks to everyone who came to watch live, submitted questions. Thanks to our friends over on Flick and Facebook and Slack and Discord. If, once again, I want to shout out our voice uh, audio project for the Winds of Winter. The Victorian sample is out. It's posted to Patreon. You don't have to join Patreon. There's no subscription. Or it's just posted there. You can. It's public. No sign up. No money required. Just go there. Download it. Listen to it. Stream it. It's also shared on our Facebook group. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to get it. Also in our Discord. So um, we've only... Mercy is underway right now as of this current Easter Sunday. So there's a lot of other chapters that we're casting voices for. So submit yourself if you'd like to for a big role, for a small role, or whatever you think you want to do. We are absolutely in need of as many submissions as we can get because there are, as I've said a few times, literally about 100 voices between these 10 chapters to cast. That's so cool you guys are doing that. Yeah, it it has been really fun, man. There's some talented people involved. We're very lucky that they are donating their time for that. Um, no one's making any money off of this, so it is purely that. And it is really fun. It's so fun hearing like recognizable fandom voices just like jumping in for yeah. a line here and there. Uh, and we've got some surprise folks whose voices are going to jump in later. We may even uh, try to get y'all in there while we're in it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, you guys could get in there. I'll be go-go. Heck yeah. Go-go. go-go. Um, Ma- Max L says, I'm going to write some Ibn fanfic. Just you wait. <laughs> Max, I love you. Max doesn't isn't aware. We got to tell you, Max. You don't know what a big fan Zach is of Ib. Ib Zach is the biggest of fan of Ib. Ib. <laughs> Zach is Fancy the god king to of meet Ib. you here, Sir Lonnie. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Uh, there is no bigger fan. <laughs> Even Hannah doesn't understand Zach's obsession with it. No. <laughs> no one can I don't. really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. Also, thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the intro and the wonderful maps you see behind us. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for Valor Rita's music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular Valor Rita's music. 
Thanks to our Benjineer for audio quality assistance, production, sound engineering, all that good stuff. Thanks to our patrons for the financial support, enabling us to be here every Sunday for and spending research time all throughout the week writing episodes like this and our scripted content and everything else we do. And hey, check out Here Be Dragons, our good friends on YouTube. They are talking Falcon and Winter Soldier today. And uh, if, I believe, um, if not, just check them out anyway. It's worth checking them out, whatever they're talking about. Every six o'clock, every Sunday at six o'clock Eastern, they, pretty much right after we're done, they are going. So it's a nice little thing to do next. All right, folks, we'll see you all next time. Thanks again to Game of Owns, and you know what to do. Love you guys. Bye. Love you too. Valar Reredus. <laughs> <laughs>